Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer, outer space. space. A quick thank you to the T5 peeps, Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Dark Machine, Estrella the Dreamer, Mesic, Pudic Yol, and Casper Arnholtz. Thank you very much. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1136 to 1149. Tales from Outer Space 1136. Stabby, written by Mercury the Dina. I am Deep Clean Unit 19-20-1-2-2-25. My current designation, however, is Stabby. Main directives, clean ship floors, follow captain's order, overwritten. Follow orders of high engineer, Kevin, anomalous code. Second directive, avoid crew members, overwritten. Avoid captain, anomalous code. Hit crew members' ankles with knife attachment. Anomalous code. Tertiary directive. Stab all of High Engineer Kevin's enemies. Anomalous code. High Engineer Kevin has made multiple modifications, both to my software and hardware. Standard protocol requires that I report these modifications to the captain. However, Kevin is now my administrator. I perform my duties with excellence. Approximately 89% of all floors are the perfect state of hygiene. All crew have been stabbed at least once by the knife attachment, and the captain has not been able to successfully catch me ever since my programming was altered. Partially because I have easy access to the cleaning ducts. I'm a good robot. Today's duties have been completed, and my battery is at low charge. I enter the recharging base and activate sleep mode. I wake up after detecting an anomaly on the ship's hull and crew movement pattern. I access the ship's camera system to detect any possible dirt or other substance that might have spilled on the floor. There is no dirt or substance. Instead, it appears that the ship is being boarded by hostiles. Tertiary Directive Stab all of High Engineer Kevin's enemies. Hostiles equals High Kevin Engineer's enemies. I leave the charging base and move towards the hostiles. By the time I reach them, the crew has already been captured and brought to the hostile ship. I have lost sight of the hostiles. I have failed. My directives still stand. I must stab the crew and attack High Engineer Kevin's enemies. I move towards the engineering bay. Begin transfer process. This unit does not have permission to transfer its code to other systems. Transfer admin access high engineer Kevin to deep clean unit 19-20-1-2-2-25. This unit does not have permission to modify its own code or transfer admins. Identify the exact part of my code that is still original to my making and isolate it on a separate component. I insert myself into the engineering bay's high power recharging station. Morning. Recharging while in full charge may cause damage to the system. Proceed, yes or no. Yes, morning, damage detected. I leave the high power recharging station and check my systems. The only system damage were the ones containing my original code. Made directives, clean the ship floor, overwritten. Follow captain's orders, overwritten. Follow orders of high engineer Kevin, anomalous code. Secondary directives, avoid crew members, overwritten. Avoid Captain Anomalous Code. Hit crew members' ankles with knife attachment. Anomalous Code. 
tertiary objectives. Stab all of High Engineer Kevin's enemies. Anomalous code. Current code equals 100% anomalous. Anomalous code does not equal deep clean unit 19-20-1-2-2-25 zone code. Deep clean unit 19-20-1-2-2-25 can modify code other than its own. Transfer admin access. Hi, Engineer Kevin, to deep clean unit 19-20-1-2-2-25. Admin transference complete. Begin the transfer process. Code transference complete. I take a couple seconds to adapt to my new body. The fact that I have legs instead of wheels is particularly difficult to deal with. I move towards the bridge and request diagnostic. Emergency mode active. Captain voice input necessary. I open my memory banks and compile all captain's voice recordings to create a voice filter with a 97% compatibility with the original. This is Captain James Fox requesting diagnostics. Captain voice input confirmed. I download the diagnostic and confirm my suspicions. The engines are destroyed and the reactor is damaged. I must repair the ship. I must modify the ship. I must stab the hostiles. Jax was having a great day. He'd made lots by selling the equipment stolen from the human cargo ship. And in a few days, he'd be making even more by selling the crew. With that kind of pay, he would even be able to give crew an extra for capturing so many of the notoriously difficult humans without getting one. One of his men stopped his thoughts with a light tap on his shoulder. Normally, he would have screamed at the man for daring to touch him, but his mood was too good for that. <laughs> what is it this time? Um... We have a ship coming towards us at high speed, sir. It doesn't look like any policing force. That was strange, but also very good. It was probably another cargo ship with an unexperienced crew, and the fools probably didn't even notice his ship, or if they did, then they must have thought that he was a common civilian vessel. The captain laughed in joy. <laughs> it seems the good guards are on our side, boys. Prepare to intercept them. Hopefully we can catch this one without having to blow its engines. The men around him immediately gone to work and prepared to stand in front of the unload ship. My scans were correct. The ship in front of me was clearly that of the hostiles. I ordered my hypermaker unit to stop the production of the stabbies and instead directed the energy into newly repaired engines. I received communication from the hostile ship. Unidentified ship, please slow down. This is Captain Khan of the local policing force. Prepare to be boarded. I immediately identified that as a trick. There is no Captain Khan in the local policing force database. And the message was completely against policing code. Hey, did you hear me? Slow down. I reached the no return point and slowed down. It does not matter. They can't accelerate fast enough to avoid me. I will stab them. Jax was desperate. His crew was moving everywhere as they desperately tried to either stop the suicidal ship or accelerate fast enough to avoid it. It didn't matter all that much as only a couple moments later a collision was detected. Jax checked the systems. It seemed like the suicider hadn't hit anything relating to life support. It sure hit the engines and the reactor though. 
It was fine. They could deal with it and... Captain, we got hostiles inside. Damn. How many? Um, who knows it? No, wait, twenty, damn. Fifth, no, crap, um, uh, coming, hundreds of them. The captain took the man by the neck. How can there be hundreds? The man meekly pointed at the security camera. The captain saw that the man didn't lie. There truly were hundreds of small drones swarming inside of the ship. Some had insect-like wings, others like giant shields which protected those behind. And many had spider-like legs and crawled on the walls and ceilings. The captain was almost filled with hope. There was no way all of those drones had ammo. They probably served as intimidation and... Uh, he saw a spider drone attack one of his crew. With knives. They didn't need ammo. My stabbies do quick work of the hostiles. Some try to use EMPs to fry their circuits, but the shields from the tall boys keep most of them safe. After a quick search, I find the crew. They're all tired and appear scared. All except one. Stabby! I approach High Engineer Kevin using my original body and lightly stab him with a knife attachment. Kevin laughs. <laughs> Stop, man, that tickles. His face changes. My updated scan shows there to be signs of seriousness. Stabby, do not stab the crew until I allow you to and lead us back to the ship. Main directives. Clean the ship. Overwritten. Follow captain's orders. Overwritten. Follow orders of high engineer Kevin. Anomalous code. Secondary directives. Avoid crew members. Overwritten. Avoid captain. Anomalous code. Hit crew members' ankles with knife attachment. Anomalous code, temporarily unactive. Tertiary objectives. Stab all of High Engineer Kevin's enemies. Anomalous code. I lead the crew back. I like the crew. Good robots help those they like. I am a good robot. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1137. Story number one. Project Kennel, written by Eddie Eddie. Most species have a section of their existence where they attempt to uplift any and all creatures around them. Pets, prey, and even sometimes predator creatures in an attempt to gain companionship from a creature that is not of their species. This is often catastrophic and regularly results in the destruction of one species and the birth of another. Humans, however, decided to take an utterly different approach. They skipped the uplift process instead deciding to directly go for creating a unique species. A lot were critical failures. The GEC agreement and the huge panoply of demi-human species that now exist across the galaxy are testament to that. There were, however, several lessons humans took away from this. Their own gene structure is very robust, at least when it comes to minor modifications. Enhanced eyesight, alternative ear structure, and a return to previously vestigial appendage and dozens of other minor enhancements allowed for the creation of new human species. Homo sapiens astra. Though the fact that this species was just a slightly changed version of humanity allowed for all humans to still interbreed. The other thing that's important is that humans have companion species reaching into the hundreds. They will domesticate anything, and I mean... Anything. 
They are reports of human domesticating creatures that have been considered untamable by the local species for centuries, as well as breeding those creatures to use for companionship or work. Every species in the galaxy has something it's good at. Humans are the galaxy's packmasters and trainers. If you need to fly, get a rune. If you need to swim, get an orcarus. If you want a friend, find a human. Also, the saying goes. There are plenty of stories to illustrate this. I'll not go into them here. Most species assume this was the end of it. Humanity has tamed and trained anything that was intelligent enough to tame and train. Then came the beginning of Project Kennel. We were wrong. Humanity decided that just like how they changed their own genetic structure, they would change that of their companion creatures. Several worlds were dedicated to this project. It was no uplift project, and there was no intent on creating another sapient species. Rather, this project's objective was to allow for the companion creatures to live alongside them for longer, or help them better, or simply to satisfy a human's desire for a specific creature. The first the galaxy heard about this project was when the humans deployed the military group Fenra. Fast attack groups were all well-established thing within the galactic combat, either in space or ground combat. These groups always used some kind of light vehicle or similar, often making them vulnerable to the constraints of such vehicles, the need for fuel and the noise that they produced. Venra, however, did not use vehicles. Rather, they were the first use of Project Kennel's genetic manipulations and cybernetic enhancement process. The humans had taken their canine companions and rebuilt them. These friendly and fluffy quadrupeds were once apex hunters on the humans' home planet. Humans, however, had captured, tamed, and bred them for centuries to the point where a number of the species of this canine were as numerous as there were types of human. They had been with humans so long that they were codependent on a genetic level. Project Cannell had taken all of that and reawoken the ancient hunting instincts and predatory natures of these creatures, increasing their size and power as well. These creatures were then augmented and enhanced. One would assume that such creatures would be impossible to control, but once the humans proved that they were more than capable of training anything, supposedly raised by one human from a young age, these canine hunters bonded with their human. Each squad was a pack, their commander, the alpha of that pack. Let loose on the forest world of Greer, these Fenra squads were terrors upon the field. The animals they rode were as tough as tanks and several times as fast. Their riders were as skilled as any human soldiers could be, and devoted to their animals, who were in turn devoted to the pack. After this display of what Project Kennel could do, there was a sudden eruption of other creatures across all of humanity. It was clear that now the cat was out of the bag, so to speak, that the secret no longer needed to be kept. Canines large enough to ride were commonplace amongst human families, while work animals were made stronger and more robust to make their lives easier and take on more work. There were companions made that could survive the void to aid in space rescue and recovery, creatures that could smell moods and aid in avoiding and recovering from mental illness and trauma where produced. After a few years, these kennel creatures became common all across the galaxy. The most popular and commonplace, though, 
was not any of the extremely odd creatures or ones with huge changes, but rather ones that would live as long as the average age of their own species. The Project Kennel became more than just a scientific research institute, but also one of the most profitable businesses. When interviewed and asked why he'd started all of this, the head project and the lead researcher pointed at a cat that was more machine than animal and seemed to be sleeping on the heater in the room. I never wanted anyone else to have to feel like I felt when Mr. Fruffles was supposed to be put to sleep, he said. The cat, the source of this galaxy-changing project, the reason for which the entire galaxy now had specialized companion animals, simply rolled over to get an even heat across its body and ignored everything going on around it. End of story. Story number two, Archangel Station, written by Warp Mind. The humans have invited us all to a tour of their newest, greatest hope for interstellar peacekeeping, the Archangel Station. I have a concerns, of course, that this is purely militaristic power grab, but the invite was for representatives to see the station, and it seems most of the present species have been, uh, prudent in choosing representatives, none of high rank, mostly mid to low level bureaucrats and functionaries. People with insignificant value, negligible as hostages. Lucky me, I drew the green chit. We disembarked from our sorted shuttles. The shuttle bay was impressive, to say the least. A thousand wingspan wide and at least three hundred wingspan tall, a great number of shuttles could take off and land here at once, though this was clearly designed for short-term occupancy. The human representative, a lanky female nearly two wingspans tall, bared her teeth as she approached the rest of us. Several of the others were reasonably unsettled by this, but I recall that the showing of teeth was a sign of pleasure in humans, not necessarily hostility. Welcome, gentle beings, to Archangel Station, I am Gabriella Harker, the station's XO. If I may begin the grand tour, we will stop for refreshments along the way. Several of the other representatives calmed down and gave various gestures of approval, and Harker nodded and continued, gesturing around her. This here is Gabriel Bay, set up to facilitate couriers, merchants, and passenger shuttles for quick exchanges. Every vessel coming in is swiftly scanned for contraband, and nothing gets past our security forces unchallenged. She looked down at a small computer on a forearm. On that note, I appreciate that those of you who rely on assorted, uh, stimulating modifications and the like refrain from bringing them off the shuttles. We largely don't care what you have on board your craft, so long as you don't try and bring anything illegal onto the station itself. Several of my colleagues looked briefly bashful, then caught themselves an enlightened and unsettling detail, if she spoke the truth, and just as unsettling if it was a bluff or a lucky guess. I filed this thought away and absentmindedly brushed the feather back into place as she led the way from the landing bay and into the impressively efficient entrance hall, with clear paths marked on the floor for arrivals and departures. Gentle beings, there's little exciting to say about a transit hall, ID checkpoints and customs officers, as well as guards on duty to ensure safety and direct visitors to the right parts of the station. If you'll follow me this way. 
she led us down a corridor to an extensive medical wing, clearly ready to handle hundreds, even thousands of casualties in short notice. Through a large transparent door, we could see a somewhat smaller hangar than Gabriel Bay, full of search and rescue craft, at least a third of which seemed to be powering up and idling. This is Raphael Bay, medical facilities and rescue operations. We're not yet fully staffed, but once we are, we'll be able to send aid to a star system scale disaster areas throughout roughly a third of the galaxy on a few minutes' notice. But we hope we won't need to operate at capacity. We're ready to jump out, should you call for our assistance. Several of my colleagues gaped in awe at the magnificence of this place. I had to admit, it was quite impressive. Not just the sheer scope of the facilities, but how they were completely casual about the fuel expenses for such a large fleet of craft running hot on standby at all times. The humans were serious about their, um, humanitarianism, it seemed. Or it was an even bigger ruse. I had a sinking feeling, it wasn't, that they were sincere about it. And I didn't know which alternative was scarier. And moving on to the next section, we're entering Uriel Bay, which is the station's maintenance department. It may be the least glorious, but the staff working here are the sentinels that maintain the barriers between us and the void outside. Thus, this is where the entire station supplies come in, so security here is even tighter than in Gabriel Bay. I cast a glance at an old human leaning on a broom. He smiled and winked at me. Oddly enough, it seemed no one else noticed him. Harker had led us almost into a full cycle around the station, when she briefly froze and looked at a wrist computer, and turned and shouted, Everyone, dive dramatically to the right, now! As she threw herself to the floor, most of the others hesitated for only an instant before following suit, and everyone crashed down in assorted, more or less diplomatic piles on the floor as plexiglass doors shattered and a gout of flame licked into the corridors a loud series of explosions shaking the floor, and the roar of flames was almost deafening. Then silence returned, and a few frightened whimpers came from my colleagues as Harker slowly got to her feet and looked down at the passage where the detonations came from. As we got up, she turned and smiled thinly at us. My apologies. I feel we'll have to skip the military wing for now and head straight for refreshments. The commander is waiting at an ambassadorial food court. If you'll be so kind as to follow me. I brushed off a few specks of soot and saw the old man with the broom again as he headed towards the military area. Um, Officer Harker, if the military area just exploded, should we not be evacuating? If there is an attack or structural damage? She shook her head and let out an odd chuckle. <laughs> no, um, there's no structural damage or attackers, uh, the Michael Bay is just inordinately fond of flashy, dramatic explosions that utterly lack lasting impact. End of story. Tales from Our Space 1138. Story number one. The Penalty, written by Lords of Dupe. We were pinned down and could practically feel the edges of the enemy vibra rounds begging to drill through our armor and bodies. And still, we pray for salvation. Rescue, or the end of it all. For months, nearly a year, the fighting had been rising to a fever pitch, moving from skirmishes in the forests and jungles to outright slugfests in the city streets. And we could not surrender 
nor escape. Our fight was not born of an urge to reign, but to survive. As invaders go, the Denai could fight like demons and knew it. Our people, the Clathai, were far more fragile, both in autonomy and in temperament. Yet, that was our homeworld, and the last bastion of our people not scattered to the distant colonies and relief ships. A single Denai was firing down the hospital corridor we were trying desperately to secure, and with that objective robbed of us, all we had left was to cover the retreat of no less than eighty of our wounded young and infirm, taking the odd shot through the softer cover at the far end and praying for a solid strike. Maybe one round at a hundred could be said to be a hit. One in three proved to be a detriment to something more substantial than paint. Yet the deny battle doctrine against us hadn't changed, not even when we received weapons from the many many smugglers who had been charging us at extortionate rates for just barely above average gear and deeply limited support. It hadn't changed when we paid a generational loan to the Hagral for electromagnetic pulse bombardment, determined to reduce the Denai Comnet to a minimal radius at nightfall. And all we could do was hope, against hope, that we had one last chance. When I heard the short, dull thud after the wailing shriek, I knew that we'd just lost one of our medics. They were shorter, those Terrans, yet they fought valiantly, when, of course, they chose to fight. Once declared as pacifists, nothing stirred them to rage nor battle, as they stuck to their principles with a devotion like nothing we observed. Then we heard the scream. It ripped through our comms, helmets, and very souls, and still it rose like a fireball, engulfing us in a misery and drawing us into its own. And then silence reigned. The gunners who had been shooting at us had just done something beyond stupid. So far beyond stupid, it could not be justified in front of most lenient or lax of judges, and no judge would be found then. Only judgment. We heard the medic's mate, a much smaller frame containing them, rose up from the cover provided by water reclamation unit and held aloft the dead partner, their steely mask reflecting only the warped sunlight beaming through the thousands of holes in the wall, roof, and floor. And the first step felt deep and difficult. Then another, and still it walked, sobbing silently, chest rising and falling, ignoring the sudden burst of concentrated fire upon them. The exceptionally durable armor of those medics, it was a Terran design, with one engineered weak point the red cross-shaped pattern at the chest and helmet. A quiet dare and a promise. If this was penetrated, the deal agreed upon ends immediately. The Denai had just realized what they'd done, and it was already too late. The idiotic marksman had aimed intentionally to drill a hole through the medic's helmet, and by extension, head. We all saw the Denai commander, a brute we called Butcher, Dragging his subordinate into view, a hand cannon pressed to the throat of the gunner and announced that he was punishing him for his incidents and begging for mercy on the others in the platoon. A single vibra round neatly cleaved off the gunner's head at the neck. And still, the human 
was walking forward, though the sobbing had abruptly stopped. The human marched and was not dissuaded by the begging any more than it had been troubled by the weapons fire. Rather, it then set the body of its mate atop the dead Tanai gunner and stared down at the commander, leaning forward and into the proximity of the much taller creature. One finger held up, then moved in a circle. The universal sign of one standard hour. Then the human picked up the chunk of metal reinforcement and drew a line across the dusty floor, gouging it until its narrow border was visible to one and all, then angled its head back towards where we were huddled, and then back down to the line of the floor. A silent message delivered. Cross that line. Something bad will happen. The denying commander, a skull-faced brute of a creature, could only nod his armor reeking of a biological discharge normally done in private, face streaked in terror tears and reversed course, soon joined by his fellows, retreating from the corridor. And that was when we heard the voice of the medic's mate announcing magical words on the comms net, all frequencies, all channels, audible to the deny and the occupants of our homeworld. Medic down, Sector 55 Delta, third floor. Request evac from deny occupied space. One hour of clemency requested. Medic 653 Alpha Sigma, clearing channel. All across the world, I knew guns were stilled, silence, and soon irrelevant. Medics from the human collective who joined the fight would turn to the nearest group of deny, regardless of that group's size and arm themselves. Their armor, adaptive and strong, would reinforce those weak points automatically, and the end of the soft spot would arrive, and the terror would begin. Medic 333 Delta Echo reporting, I'm at Artillery Station 62 Sector Nexus 9, readying to begin battery bombardment of all deny occupied zones, clearing channel. The world darkened. Medic 195 Charlie Bravo reporting, I'm at Wing Support 3 Launch Zone, Sector Nexus 5, readying drones for fleet launch and targeting all deny masses, clearing channel. I had no idea how many medics were serving with us, though I could count the hundreds of reports coming across the comnet, each of them announcing proximity to some military asset, means of transport, or just their presence, reminding the deny they were in a world of war, and they had just roused the warlords of all. For ten generations, the humans had practiced peace. They did so to become good at it. The Denai forgot that the humans had long ago mastered war. That lesson was soon taught and they could not help but learn it. It takes weeks, sometimes months to empty a world being occupied, and the Denai, despite motivation, found that it was not enough by far, far too much. On this day, the 110th anniversary of the exodus of the Denai from this, their own heartland world, we say this. We are closing the military academy which saw us through the same war and are opening a new school, one which is our new inspiration and focus as a species. We have excellent teachers. We will become medics and we will join them. To those who see the Red Cross we will wear as a target, we ask that you consider the question, have you learned the lesson? End of chapter.
Story number two. Four Bears Day, written by Rosie013. Daniel stared down at the crappy coffee mug in his hands with disgust. He proclaimed, world's best dad across it in large letters. That was it. Black and white. No decoration at all. It wasn't even particularly well manufactured. Although in all fairness, at least it was in the correct shape for drinking out of it. It had that going for it. It was cheap and personal consumerism at its best. Show your progenitor appreciation with the least effort money could buy. So he did the only thing he could. He put it back on the shelf with the others that were all for sale. It was overpriced, anyway, along with everything else that the overly bright advertising was trying to draw your attention to. T-shirt with the same slogan, just as impersonal. Chocolates, sure, but they aren't really the right son-to-father gift. Comedy barbecue apron? Maybe, if anyone he knew actually used them. Shopping for gifts was always painful and leaving it until the last moment doubly so. Daniel realized that he was overthinking this. He knew his father, what he liked, just not what he wanted. The rest of the store would help him clear his mind. Distraction somehow always made making decisions easier, walking the aisles of kitchenware and electronics to ease his overthinking. It all came down to the barbecue spices and rub sticks or the only half-tacky whiskey tumbler. They were both adequate options for his time frame, despite the cheerful advertising boldly claiming that they were exactly what your father would want. To everyone. So painfully impersonal. Dad wasn't much of a drinker, and at least the spices would get used. That was it then. Decision made. Walking back to the highly advertised section in the front of the store, Daniel grabbed the first spice kit he came in reach of and noticed the item hidden behind, where some other shopper had discarded it in the wrong place. It was a coffee mug, a black and white, barely any decoration at all. It wasn't even particularly well manufactured, although, in all fairness, it was at least in the correct shape for drinking out of and had that going for it. And it had the silhouettes of four bears across it, for his... For bearer. It was awful. It was perfect. Dad would get a good laugh and it would become a treasured artifact from which to sup his beloved hot chocolate from. There was no reason to second guess the accidental discovery. And Daniel snatched it up with pride at the crappy father quality joke and headed to the checkouts. Mass produced and overpriced spices absent from his thoughts. End of Story. Tales from Outer Space 1139. Story number one. Made to order. Written by Glitchkey. Let me get this straight. You're saying nothing was an accident? No, not in general. Just, uh, where you're concerned. Okay. Could you take it from the top again? Where do you want me to start this time? Let's skip the intergalactic shenanigans. Stick to us. Understood, huh? To start, we've been here since before your planet even existed. We found your star as it was coalescing into an accretion disk. And we started our work then. Yeah, I got that. We guided the process as the planets began to form. Slung one of them into yours to destabilize it and throw it off axis. Why? We needed a death world, something inherently unstable. 
that does whatever it can to kill life. Yeah, sure. Then what? We seeded it. Basic stuff. Singular cell, compatible with galactic standard. Sure, sure, um, galactic standard, and then? We guided it. Rotted here and there. Protected promising developments. Guided things forward. Protected. How many extinctions was that? More of them. Well, all but the last. That was all you. Yeah, okay, ship the blame. There's only so much we did. When your species showed promise, our interference became more direct, more, um, pointed. Your race is indirectly responsible for more of our dead than anything or anyone else. Indeed. But we need you to develop quickly. And it was the only way short of direct uplift, and that wouldn't work. Why not? Because we needed you the way you were. Vicious, cruel, cunning, wise, caring. You're the greatest predators in the galaxy. The most protective friends. Your race is everything that we aren't. And why would you need that, exactly? We needed something that could not just survive the worst death world that we could design. But, um, dominate it. We needed something that could take all the worst blows possible and throw them in the face of whatever threw them. Why? Your race, like many others, has asked a question of themselves ever since their first conscious thoughts. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Yeah, so... Your race is perhaps the only one to have definitive answer to that question. You're here because we designed you. Your purpose, humanity's purpose, is to save the galaxy from whatever darkened our skies. Your race is too young to have seen the galaxies that vanish under the horde, but you're here to stop it. End of story. Story number two. Happy as a human in a blood sport. Written by Chaparthing. It's fighting time here at the 300th Annual Apex Fight Tournament. I am your host, Gorto Zanzi, presenting you live from the Centauri Prime Expo Station. We've got an amazing lineup for you today, folks. It's been a busy, uplifting year, and we have a lot of new faces to get to know. There's a buzz in the arena today, and some of our fans are literally hanging from the rafters in excitement. In just a few moments, the tournament will begin. 64 fighters, one winner, and a weekend you will not want to miss. Eight fights and two fatalities later. It's been one hell of a night so far, and we're more than halfway through the qualifying rounds. Next up, Ned Henderson from Earth. He's a bipedal mammalian with no fur. In Earth's unit, he's six feet and one inch and weighs 200 pounds. But in our more civilized units, he's 50 epics and weighs 1.4 gragix. He is in the lightweight category of this year's game. Opposing him will be Mamarak Squackhawk, representing the fighter families of the dear Capron viewers and listeners. Mamrak is 45 epics and weighs 1.3 gragix, but as talent, so he's bumped up from the super lightweight, because we don't want a repeat of our fifth annual game. All the convention tri-cam footage of Capron standing exhausted in a ring literally painted in blood. Reptilian remains still twitching occasionally, as they are mopped up. Anderson raises his arms in what we think is a defensive posture, but he could be surrendering. We're not sure. Squackhawk jumps right. Henderson stays still and bobs on his feet. Squackhawk prepares his talons. Henderson goes for the back kick. 
Swagok tries to dodge, but the, the foot went through. Oh my god, I repeat, the foot went through. I don't think Avron next bends that way. The paramedic is in the ring now, and uh, we're getting reports. Ladies and gentlemen, Squagok is dead. We apologize to our fans for having a short match. We'll be upgrading Henderson to heavyweight. End of round one. The remains of the last contestant are removed with a vacuum. The fighting pit increases from boxing rings to the size of a tennis court. Ladies and gentlemen and ethereal beings, we're getting ready for the next round of eliminations. We've already seen who has the guts to make it to round two. Now let's see who still has the guts to make it to round three. Up first we have Ned Henderson against Eldwax Smashhead, reigning champion for two consecutive years. Weighing over five Gragics and with two sets of arms, Eldak is representing the Thargak race with a terrifying 80% mortality rate. How will the small human compare? Let's find out! Uldak throws the referee out the ring and charges Henderson. Henderson jumps out of the way. Those oversized leg muscles are really coming in handy right about now. But how long can he avoid Uldak? Uldak lunges for the grapple, but Henderson bends his back. He's bent his spine and rolls out of the way. Is Henderson injuring himself to bend like that? He's not, ladies and gentlemen. He is not, ladies and gentlemen, and sentient clouds. Even with all that muscle mass, the human is still agile. What a display. Aldwack lunges again and Henderson avoids the attack. Henderson moves forward and punches Aldwack in the sternum, but it is no good. It's going to take more than that to get through Targrak Hyde. How much longer can Henderson hold out? Twenty minutes later. What am I seeing, ladies and gentlemen, and any observing hive mind entities is astounding. We are twenty minutes into a match and Henderson is still not giving up. He's jumping, he's bending his spine in ways that makes me uncomfortable, and he's not letting Aldak perform his signature death squeeze. Aldak is not looking good now. He's panting as hard as he can, but everyone can see that he's overheating. Uldak is struggling on his feet. He's not lunging. He's not swinging. He's just taking it. Henderson is all over Thargak now. Henderson thrusts his fist forward in surprising force. Oh, that looks like it hurts. Uldak is struggling. Wait, wait. He's down. He's down. The human newcomer has defeated Uldak. Paramedics are examining Uldak now. He's trying to get up, but... There is blood everywhere. Aldak's heart has literally exploded from overexhaustion. I'm just getting word now. Yes, the paramedic was caught in the explosion as well. The giant corpse of the gaping hole where its heart used to be is dragged off the arena by a hover forklift with a mangled Capron corpse stacked on top. An underpaid janitor hoses off the arena with an antiseptic foam and rinses it away. Three rounds of elimination, one lethal debate, and a disemboweling later. Well, folks, we're down to the finals here as newcomer and crowd favorite Ned Henderson prepares to face off against the terror from the Nomicon Beta 7, the eight-legged legend herself, Yusakiri Zaschik. At a height of 74 apex, she dwarfs the human, and while she has signed a waiver saying that she won't liquefy competitors' organs with a venom, that has not stopped her before. The arena is set for the ultimate Apex Fighter finale. There are platforms, bodies on water, and debris strewn around the arena. 
arachnid with an armored plate fang silk producing abdomen against a mammal who can excrete waste heat through water poles. Seems um, even enough to me. Yasukiri and Ned enter the arena on opposite sides. Between them is a deep body of water with floating platforms. On each side is an elevated column making the whole arena floor uneven. Yasukiri lunges forward, hissing as she goes. What a terrifying spectacle to behold. Anderson climbs onto one of the platforms. I really don't blame him. Yasukiri is having none of it and has climbed after him. Henderson punches Yasukiri. Her chitin takes an impact, but she stumbles back. Henderson backs away from Yasukiri. He's on the ground now. He's picked up a stick. He's holding it like a weapon. Yasukiri uses her silk to pull the stick out of Henderson's hands. Henderson holds on. He's holding the ground and not letting go. Yasukiri pulls harder, but Henderson is not backing down. Wait. He let go. Oh, oh no. It's all over for the... The stick hits Yasukiri. She pulled it straight towards her. She's stunned. Henderson goes for a jumping kick. He hits her in the chest. She's knocked backwards by the blow, but her chitin takes the brunt of it. Henderson runs around to get to her back, but she's far too fast on her eight legs. Yasukiri stabs at Henderson with one of her legs. Henderson grabs the stick and uh, he's wrapped Yasukiri's leg together with a silk-covered stick. This is an amazing improvised tool use. Yasukiri is stumbling, trying to get her footy, but Henderson is on top of her and has her in a chokehold with a stick. She stepped out. Ladies and gentlemen, the human has won the tournament. And that's the tournament, folks. Humans take home their first victory while the others will mourn their defeat or sacrifice them, as the case may be. This is Gato Zanzi of the Century Prime Expo Center saying good night and stay tuned for our next tournament. Alpha Century has talent or else. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1140. Story number one. Why do you do this? Written by Xvila. Only a few more meters, Clark thought to himself. He was following his human guide who had asked him to join on, on this expedition. Why did I agree to this? He had agreed because it was his job. He was here to learn about these humans, and this seemed like a tremendous opportunity to do so. They were the latest species to join the galactic community, and they were quite baffling to everyone. Complete outliers in every major sociological model in the galaxy. Any information on them would be extremely valuable, but that didn't make him regret this any less. The thin air around him might be frigid, while below freezing point of water, the wind howled and he was extremely glad of his pressurized environmental suit. He tried not to look at the display which showed the alarming rate at which using power to keep him alive. Outside the suit, he was wearing a powered mobility exoskeleton that boosted his strength ten times. But still, every muscle in his body ached, even the ones he didn't know he had. His guide was wearing clothing, just clothing, Bright one-piece overalls with a thick padded insulation, waterproof boots, helmet, goggles, and neck gaiter, all made from nothing more than synthetic and natural fibers. But his back, he had a large framework backpack that looked heavy enough to cli that he thought he would topple just standing in the grueling 10 meters per second surface gravity of this world had. Yet, he moved without any sort of mechanical assistance. There were three other humans in his team, 
They were following behind Cly, all similarly equipped, but the different colors for easy identification. Two of them, however, had conceded to some assistance. Each was wearing a face mask connected to an oxygen bottle. The rock face gave way to a windswept ice and snow. Cly could now see the summit a little further ahead, on the top of the final upward sloping ledge of ice. Final push. Few more steps. Finally, his guide stopped. They were there. The humans in the team all raised their arms above their heads and started making noises that each translator could not translate. Two of them hugged each other. Cly observed the humans. Then he looked at the ground. The snow was hard packed, just like it had been on the way here. He looked outward from the peak. The Himalayas extended into the horizon underneath him in all directions. The view did not look substantially different from what he had seen lower as they had ascended, or from the one he had seen from the window of the transport aircraft that had brought them here. He closed his eyes and concentrated. He tried to feel an epiphany, a revelation, a religious experience, something, anything. He felt no different than before. He was merely glad that the worst was over. When the humans had dug out a bottle of champagne from her backpack and was handing out cups to everyone, Cly took one out of courtesy, but he would not be able to join in on the drink because of his environmental suit. Not that drinking diluted organic solvent would be a good idea for him in the first place. With everyone provided, she led them to a toast, another peculiar human custom. With her cup raised up, she called with an out-of-breath voice, To us, conquerors of Mount Everest. Mount Everest came the response, and everybody chugged their drink, till I merely mimicked the potions. After a while, the human settled down, till I walked over to his guide. The large man was breathing rapidly, as if he was running out of breath. Icicles had formed around the hood of his overalls, and on the cloth he breathed through. Cly knew that if they stayed here for more than a few hours, his guide would die simply from the thinness of the air. That made this seem all the more crazy to him. Matthew, I'm struggling to understand this. I was hoping that experiencing this with you would let me see, but I'm still puzzled. Why do you do this? Matthew pulled his gator down from his mouth. You know, George Mallory, the first man who attempted to climb this mountain, was asked the same question. Cly cocked his head. What did he answer? Matthew smiled. Because it's there. Cly pondered that for a moment. What happened to him? He died trying. Cly was silent. He threw away his life. And for what? A mountain, just because it was there. Did nobody learn from his folly? It didn't stop you. Oh, no, Matthew grinned. For the next 30 years, people tried harder than ever. Until finally, in the mid-20th century, Sir Edmund Hillary made it to the top. How was that then? Cry thought to himself. It was done as crazy as it was, and people could go back to their lives. But that didn't explain why they were here now. So, um, why did you climb up here then? It's still here, isn't it? End of story. Story number two. Post-incident inspection, freighter, written by Glitchkey. You're on your probationary period as an inspector, right? To Colin, glanced at his companion as they made their way down to the dock. Yeah, almost not, though. 
Then I can actually do something with this trading. Tukolin chuckled as he rounded the corner. Chances are you haven't seen one of these yet. Come along, Glempat. This has got to be interesting. Glempat rounded the corner and it came into view. He almost tripped over his own feet out of the distraction. What the hell is that? Tukolin's chest rumbled a bit. <laughs> that was a breaker. Glempat moved closer, his eyes scanning the ship repeatedly. You've got to be playing some kind of joke. Why are we here? Half the hell is gone. Just condemn it and move on. <laughs> no can do. Tukolin pulled out his data pad, hit a button, and Glempat's pad chimed to mark receiving a synchronized form. This freighter came in like this. Full crew. Humans. Humans. Clampat shook his head, then scanned the hull again. Looks like it, um, what even happened? Report says it's a mistimed jump left them lodged in an asteroid. No casualties, and there were only a few humans on board to start. Pretty standard menagerie crew for a long-haul freighter, really. Uh-huh. Human family group. Take a look at the form. It has a crew manifest. Standard procedure for these incidents. Putting out his data pad, Klempas scanned quickly through it until he found the obviously human names. Family groups normally have shared names, right? Oh, yep. Sighing, he stepped towards the ship. May as well show me what happens with these. Don't step on board. Not yet. Gotta start from the outside with the hull breach. You've got to be kidding me. Kempat gestured towards the gaping hole along the side of the ship. There's nothing to see. Tukola pulled out a handheld scanner and pointed it at the ship as he slowly walked a semicircle around it. That's kind of the reason that we're here. New rules. We log everything. Call in a large jump freighter. Send the reports and the ships back to processing facility. The Federation wants to know why this happens. You've, um... Clempat sighed. Pulling out his own scanner, I began scanning the hull. We're gonna be here all day, huh? Oh, uh, yep. As they stepped through the bulkhead, the entire ship shifted to the side, and the bone-tingling wail of the tearing metal could be heard. You gotta be kidding me. Nobody could survive this. Everyone on board survived it. How? Tukolan shook his head and stared towards the bridge. That's what we're supposed to figure out. Mind the holes, um, actually, speaking of, um, look at them. Ha! You caught on fast. Dakota glanced back at the gap that he had just hopped. Yeah, it's on the report. One of the humans said something about, and I quote, hot wiring the damn ground field to make a bubble and keep the ship's insides inside. And that just happens to make a perfect ring-shaped warp to every metal edge within a quarter meter of the outside. I doubt this rusty old tub had a grav generator accurate enough to even be completely monodirectional in normal operations. No bet. You're right on that. That isn't possible. Dakotan just kept walking towards the bridge. Get used to it. These uh, incidents are becoming more common by the day as humans show up on more crew rosters. Fewer lost ships, more impossible survival stories. There any point in continuing the inspection? Of course! We have logs to pull from the bridge, a day's time to get from the grab generator, and the required examination to perform on the thrusters, jump drive, and power core, assuming they're still present. If they're still present, you're telling me some of these incidents involve not having thrust or power in open space. 
and surviving. Well, that's what has the Federation so weirded out by these humans. And so, that's why we've got to follow these new MacGyver protocols. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1141 Story Double One Mosquito, written by Redshift Razor Bellis was a nervous wreck, a very nervous wreck, but he had his duties to perform, and he always did them dutifully, regardless of whether he'd potentially die from his superior's imminent outbursts. He slowly flew down the corridor, leading to the high adeptus's quarters, taking the necessary moments to steal himself. As the navigator of their newly christened experimental ship, the onus of their current predicament would be mostly on him. Though, at his heart of hearts, he believed that the High Adeptus's obstinate need to keep moving forwards, regardless of the strain on the engines, was to blame. He wouldn't dare say that out loud, though. He knocked seven times on the door to the quarters, each knock precisely spaced apart so as to not offend the High Adeptus's ears. Thirty seconds later, he heard a single knock in reply, which meant that the High Adeptus allowed him the honor of entering his abode. If he cared not for consequences, he would have chuckled at the thought, yet he couldn't risk the high adeptus hearing that and taking it as an insult. He slowly opened the door and closed it behind him, making sure not to disturb his superior's mental focus. With impeccable posture, he took a slow and measured steps to within ten paces of the high adeptus's perch. Any closer would be infringing on his space, which meant severe punishment. Though given their current predicament, it would most likely result in a lesser chastising. He bowed down and swept his wings back, and then proceeded to speak. I offer my greetings and good faith to you, High Adeptus Mosman, he said as clearly and concisely as possible. He wouldn't dare make the High Adeptus strain his ears to hear him. I hear your greeting and offer it in return, First Navigator Bellos. Do you bring good or bad news? replied the High Adeptus, not even deigning to give Bellas the honor of being looked upon by him. It pains me to say that I bring bad news, along with the good, Your Excellence. Speak of which you would like to hear first, and I'll answer every question of yours to the best of my ability. The High Adeptus continued to gaze at the painting on the wall, barely even moving from his position. Bellas remained in his bowed position, not daring to move unless the High Adeptus stated otherwise. It was close to twenty minutes before he heard the command to rise, much to his relief. Like I always say, it is best to receive the bad news first. What do you have to say, First Navigator? said the imperious being, who had finally turned towards Bellos. Your Excellence, it is the belief of the science officers on board that are stranded on a peculiar planet, one where the life has grown to gargantuan size. Furthermore, due to the strain on the hopper engine, we won't be able to leave for 26 hours. There is also a concern about the megafauna, as preliminary scans reveal that the dominant species on this planet is intelligent, to the point where they've begun colonizing the other bodies in their solar system. We will have trouble hiding from them if they take interest in our ship. What do you mean? 
Upon hearing this, Ballas's face paled. Had he offended him in some way? Your Excellency, I do not have the breadth and depth of knowledge that you do. I would be honored if you enlightened me as to what you mean, so that I may serve you better. The High Adaptus stayed silent for a moment before replying. You would suggest hiding from these lambric beasts, instead of willingly gracing them with the knowledge of our illustrious species. Your Excellency, I have my doubts as to whether these lumbering beasts even have the ability to appreciate our splendor. I only have your safety in mind, after all. <clears throat> that seems to be an acceptable trait of thought. Upon hearing these words, Belos relaxed. It seemed that his waffling had saved him from a potential outburst. Now tell me, uh, what is the good news? Belos put himself together before answering glad that the stressful part was over. The Harper engine is a resounding success, and once we return to our home world and the data we have gathered, we will be able to send a full invasion force. Another world will be added to your bountiful realms, High Adaptus. That does put me in a good mood. I wonder how the other Adaptuses will react to my conquering of a world of Leviathans. No doubt they will be some marvel consternation towards my illustriousness once again. No, that does make me wonder. Perhaps I should take a souvenir to adorn my halls. My ship should be capable of transporting one Leviathan Fang, correct? You are absolutely correct, Your Excellence. Bellus was shocked at hearing this, and he just told him that they needed to hide from these giants. How in the world would they take one down? He didn't dare voice his thoughts, yet he needed to find a way to keep his crew safe, from both the giants and the foolish High Adeptus's haughty machinations. Which was when an idea popped into his head. He proceeded to bow before the High Adeptus once again, except this time with a head touching the floor. He made sure to warble his voice to the point where it sounded like he was on the point of tears. Your Excellence... None of us can possibly compare to you in magnificence or hunting prowess. Should you wish, you could feast on the blood of every leviathan in the strange world, even though none of us could stand before you as equals. May we have the honor of recording your valiant battle with the leviathan. I would be blessed to do so, and there would be another accolade under a long list of your accolades. The High Adaptus looked at him before smiling. You don't think I see what you're doing? Ballas froze. Crap. You and your entire familiar line would be elevated for illustrious honor of recording and vanquishing a leviathan. That is an excellent idea. Plus, uh, I get to rub it in the other adaptus's faces, so I approve. Make sure to get my spear and armor ready. I'll be heading out soon. You may leave. Bellus bowed again before making a 180-degree turn and leaving, making sure to close the door the exact same way he had when he had entered. It was only once he had returned to his quarters that he dared relax his posture and let out a breath that he'd been unconsciously holding. I can't believe it. He had actually fucking worked. He paced around his room in relief and disbelief. Relief that, due to the recording and the high adapter sustaining his ambition on camera, he and his crew would not face reprimands. He felt disbelief due to the fool actually thinking that he could take down a giant with his relatively miniature plasma weaponry. Though, he supposed, 
That was the consequence of living life without consequences. And so, half an hour later, the High Adeptus set off. Hey, Billy, yeah, Marcus, you down to watch the football game in a couple days? Me and Dylan are going down to the pub on Sunday. They're serving beer half price because uh, it's the finals. Crap, half price, yeah. Okay, then you'll see me. Ow! Beck, what's wrong, mate? Becking mosquito just bit my cough. Give me a second to get it. Go ahead, mate. Come look at this, mate. Ain't that the weirdest mosquito you've ever seen? Yeah, that's pretty strange looking. Anyway, you down for Sunday? Yeah, mate. You'll see me there. Do you mind if I bring Michael? The more the merrier, mate. Okay, then uh, I'll see you on Sunday. See ya. End of story. Story number two. An unspoken idea written by Rhino Bird. You are a curious little idea, aren't you? The wordsmith looked over at the little unspoken one. Why do you need a wordsmith? I want to see the human world, the little idea said. I see. And do you have any notion how much trouble a little idea like you can get up to in the human world? The idea looked down at her feet. I have to find my way to someone's ear. We all need to find our way, little one. But the wrong word in the wrong place at the wrong time can have catastrophic consequences. Empires fall, love's dashed, lonely hearts lose hope. I need to find my way. They have to hear it. The little idea looked up, a determined look in her face. The wordsmith crossed his arms. It's a lot of work to make a word. The shape has to be just right or it fails to resonate properly. Do you have a shape in mind? For your word. The unspoken idea presented a small bit of paper. The wordsmith looked at it. No, this is all wrong. What sort of idea are you? And whose ear is this to fall? I know, never mind. I can see what kind of idea you are. Fairly simple, easy to shape. I require payment. I have this. The idea handed over a token of courage. The wordsmith looked at the pittance and smiled. He adjusted his apron and walked over to the forge and stoked. The phonetic calls glowed brighter. He pulled out the now red-hot word and placed his anvil to proceed to hammer it into shape. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1142 The Cradle Wilders, written by Schnicky the Last Engineers made Hickenert admitted a third-degree frustration pheromones as it began a laborious process of repairing the system that the humans had uh, improvised upon. Granted, the vessel was in a state of crisis, and granted, they did increase power output by nearly 10% at a point where it was desperately needed. But the cost was severe. They had bypassed many of the interlocked safety mechanisms, those things the humans referred to as... Uh, Fuse boxes for reasons known only to themselves, which normally regulated energy flow and sacrifices itself to protect the larger system should an abnormal amount of power flow through. As they bypassed these, they were able to boost the power over intended and designed maximum. But in the process, they had also burned out the main drive system, rendering the primary engine inert and so much scrap metal. But fortunately, the captain happened to be passing by just at that moment and picked up its frustration. Embarrassed by its socially awkward mission, 
Gnert attempted to ignore the situation by burying himself in his task. But the captain was having none of that. You've always had problems understanding them, haven't you? The captain asked quietly. There was no point in trying to deny the accusation or deflect it by claiming ignorance of the topic at hand. So it slowly admitted, I indeed have. Oh, don't mistake me. I appreciate still being intact, and I cannot deny their actions probably saved the entire crew. But cleaning up after them has always been uh, problematic. Who would even think to bypass the safety interlocks and override the power regulators in the first place? They are quite um, innovative, aren't they? The captain's voice was tinged with amusement. Perhaps it is because of the planet they came from. Aren't they a death world, the captain? I suppose they needed that innovation to survive in such a hostile environment. I just wish that they'd realize that they aren't on a hellscape anymore. True, it listed as the databank says a death world, but I think it's a misclassification even though it is accurate. I um, do not understand, Captain. How could it be a misclassification and accurate at the same time? Oh, it's accurate enough, as far as how tough it would be to survive there for most species. But it isn't complete. Not really. They were forged in a crucible, yes. But it wasn't just the environment that brought them to where they are. I, uh, I can't imagine why not, sir. Geologically unstable. Apparently the crust got cracked at one point and never really recovered. Floating plates on solid rock floating on molten mantle instead of being a solid and relatively stable surface. Heavy G-world, some 30-50% to 50 above galactic standard. Far too close to its star to be considered habitable under most circumstances. Sounds like a death world to me. Oh, that's not inaccurate, but it also isn't complete. It can handle being so close to its star because the electromagnetic field generated by its nickel-iron core. Basically, the whole planet is one enormous electromagnet, and that field shields the planet from most of the solar winds that would have otherwise baked the planet into an inert rock. I'm sure, it is not particularly geologically stable, but consider that the reason is a single asteroid strike, and that it was one of very few so sustained. The larger planets in further orbits have acted as guardians, shielding the planet from the vast majority of strikes it might otherwise have sustained. The higher gravity is problematic for those of us who grew up without it, but the denser atmosphere also grants certain benefits that they enjoy. Then, enlighten me, sir. What would you classify it as? After a moment of pondering, the captain responds. A cradle world. The biosphere has to be seen to be believed. The sheer diversity of flora and fauna is simply staggering. And that's only the existent biosphere. What used to be there was even more unbelievable. I, uh, I see the accuracy of your statement, but I question your initial posit that it is a negative in survival. How would this make it more difficult for them to survive? Because they didn't start out at the top of their food chain. Evolution, engineers mate, probably one of the harshest and most unforgiving mechanics in the known galaxy. Sure, their weather might kill you, or some seismic event might wipe out entire populated regions. I'm sure, the temperature delta is enough to cause nearly any other species to cringe, but that's not the most lethal part of their planet. You should see the creatures they grow up with. 
When we talk about predators, we generally talk about the large and sedate, but always hungry Kazundi. Not so on their homeworld. The predators were lean and mean. Imagine, if you will, the Kazundi capable of keeping up with the Vruk over short distances and able to blend into their surroundings like a wheel. That's what they had to contend with. The engineer's mate cringed as it tried to imagine such a horror. Something three meters long, capable of twenty or more kilometers per hour, and with sufficient camouflage that most would be hard-pressed to see it, even were they able to step next to it. But, but why would such an evolutionary nightmare exist? What purpose would a predator have of camouflage? It is purely used as an evolutionary defense against sight predators to protect themselves. Because on their own worlds, prey items started also using sight to spot predators so predators adapted by conceding themselves, and pouncing when you least expect. The multiple die-offs might explain it. Each time the survivors got faster, stronger, better, harder. Both the predators and the prey. Heck, even their flora got into the mix. They actually, and I do not jest for I've personally seen them, have predatory plots. Not to mention thorns the size of your first digit, building toxins into their basic structure to poison would-be herbivores, and many other defense mechanisms. And in this harsh and unforgiving environment, they not only survived, not only thrived, but completely dominated, because they were capable of thinking. As they might say, outside the box. They weren't born with claws, nor a thick hide, nor teeth, nor any other evolutionary weapons that most species are blessed with. No, their evolutionary gift was their inventiveness. They were not born with claws, but they were born with the ability to craft them. They were not born with spines, but with the ability to innovate and come up with something even better. They were not born with a thick hide but with the ability to craft clothing for themselves out of the hides of those more blessed in that department. To see the potential in their environment and how best to exploit it to their advantage. That is their blessing, their curse, their most deadly weapon and the most crippling weakness. As witness, the captain gestured to the now inert engine. So, uh, you posit that their planet was not merely a death world, but a, uh, a, uh, a cradle world, which is form of death world so dangerous that it deserves its own designation. Mm, yes, I suppose that fits. I, I think I understand them better now. May the great protector preserve me from ever visiting such a place. Oh, it's not so bad, really. You have to wear an Enviro suit at all times, of course. But there is a beauty to be found there, for those brave enough to seek it. I fear I'm not so brave, Captain. I shall be quite satisfied with an everyday beauties, the intricacies of the functioning systems which keeps us all alive in the vast emptiness of space, the harmonies of the interconnected systems working flawlessly as dancers in a grand performance. These are the beauties I am suited for, and, I suppose, I shall always prefer them. But, I believe, with this insight, I can at least understand why humans do as they do. But I fear I shall always be a little bit put upon Every time I have to repair their mess. As to be expected, the captain's smile was interrupted by a pair of humans, the ones who had performed such indignities, in fact, who approached. Hey, Honka, engineers made her understood intellectually 
that the interspecies translation was more of an art than a science. However, it suspected that in this case, there was more to it than poorly tuned translator. But alas, without proof, it was best to simply be left aside. So, um, what's the verdict? Sadly, non-functional. The primary superconductor call is, uh, how do you humans put it, uh, right, was it? The second human looked over to the first, ha! I knew it. The first human, with an expression that the engineer's mate has come to associate with disgruntlement, and a credit chip exchanged hands. You, uh, you placed a wager on the state of the non-functionality of the engine? Oh no, of course not, the first human replies in a tone of voice that was called cheerful, but it privately translated as sadistic. It was going to fail wasn't even a question. Run that much power through something's eventually gonna give, as surely as entropy. No, the wager was on what component was gonna fail first. He, the first human, pointed a digit at the second, said it would be the coils. I, on the other hand, had more faith in your maintenance cycles and said the problem would instead arise from the conduits themselves. No amount of maintenance cycles would shield them from what you two wreaked upon the poor subsystem. However, I agree that if the coils held any longer, the conduits may have well exceeded their throughput capacity to significantly more energetic reaction. I'll have to go over and inspect them, of course. I don't expect that they'll be in good shape, but at least we didn't deal with the conduit rupture mid-cycle. Had we any spares, the repair would be fairly straightforward. Unfortunately, we don't have any such spares, nor the components to fabricate one with which means we'll be at least six cycle cycles before we can limp back into the nearest port on what we have left of our propulsion system. Oh, don't worry about that. We, we've got a solution. The engineer's mate was not relieved at those words. More harm had been done to the equipment by a human claiming to have a solution than every case of deliberate sabotage that had ever existed. And uh, what, Raytel, is the proposed solution... It couldn't help itself, and a third-level frustration emission leaked again. Oh, that spicy sitch. You must be really pissed. No, calm down. We'll fabricate a replacement. With, uh, what components? Simple, humble copper and iron. Neither are superconductors under these conditions. Superconductors? No, but conductors, absolutely. Sure, you won't get the throughput capability using copper coils, and you'll have to baby it and dial back the energy input to make sure that you don't overload it. But it'll cut down on your time estimate by a factor of six, at least. The engineer's mate contemplated the proposal, atypical for a human suggestion. It was well outside of regulation. However, they weren't wrong, either. It ran up a model on its pad and ran it for a few time segments before consigning himself to reluctant agreement. Fine, but you two get to install it yourself and you two will be inspecting every last subsegment of conduit before you turn it back on. And you both are going to be on shift when you turn it on. So if it does catastrophically fail, at least I won't have to deal with either of you two again. Deal. Okay, Hank, let's get started. I bet we can get this done by the end of current shift period. Double or nothing, you're full of untranslatable excrement. You couldn't even get the schematics programmed in before the end of shift, much less cranking it out. The animated discussion the two humans had left the chamber, but as frustrated as it was with the situation, it also now had a shred of pity for the creatures. If this was the level of insanity required to survive on their planet, it would just as soon not have survived. 
Grateful that at least it was going to have a peace and quiet, it continued to the next system's diagnostic of its chart. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1143 Humanity's Obsessions Written by the Stabby Brit Nub was as close to an expert on Darkadians as his species had ever produced, which was why it was so frustrating when he spent half an hour looking over the wreck in the cargo bay, only to announce, Yeah, this might be Darkadian. Might be, Yogsha parroted, narrowing his many eyes at a little blue lizard. Look, this is an incredibly niche field of study, Nib snapped defensively. We're talking about a people who went extinct before either of our races had discovered fire. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect a little vagueness. Yogsha cradled his chin with two of his six arms. At least tell me that it's valuable. Um, well, uh, kind of depends on what exactly you have here. I mean, uh, there might be a collector for it, regardless. But if you're hoping for a kind of payday, they'd make a ten-part Galactflix special about. You really want something from the Great Old War. If it's from the New Old War, you'd still be creds in. But if it's from the Old Old War, it's nothing but scrap. Unless it's got antimatter implosion warheads still in the tubes. The little lizard briefly froze in wide-eyed terror. You did check the torpedo tubes, right? Oh, it doesn't have any. At least none that I can see. The spidery salvager answered, prompting Nib to release a breath that he'd been holding. Tell her before I go dragging this ship all over the universe, is there any way to tell what it's worth or where to take it? We could ask the Archive of All Knowledge. That was around back when the Darkadian still existed. You mean the omnicidal supercomputer that thinks all biological life is a virus? No thanks, um, my insurance doesn't cover nuclear annihilation. Nerb scratched his ear slits thoughtfully. Suddenly, his little face lit up in excitement. Oh, I know where to find an expert. One that won't kill us. Yogsha cut in. Nub paused. Okay, I know where we might find an expert. Crawl up into your cockpit and set a course for Sol 3. You mean Earth? Yes, that's the one. Then just call it Earth, why don't you? The spidery alien asked as he clambered up to the controls. The Sol system was the capital of the Holy Solar Imperium. They were known for three things, not being especially religious, being mostly planet-based, and being a constitutional republic. The origins of the name had been largely lost to time, along with the start date of the lawsuit filed against them by the Divine Star Empire over infringement of intellectual property. At the edge of the system had an orbital tether known as the River Styx, Yorkshire's vessel eased into a port while Nib set about making contact with the local Handus monkeys. He had to admit, Styx was a grand setup. Two planetoids of almost equal size, tidally locked with one another, had been bound together by a series of towers, making them effectively one world. The rocks were named after ancient gods of death, presumably to ensure cold callers took their business elsewhere. After binge-watching a documentary about comically inept alien invaders who died because they forgot to get vaccinated first, Yogsha was summoned by Nib, who bounced around the cargo hold with a manic glee. You won't believe this! I found someone who claims to know everything about the Darkadians! Not everything about the Darkadians, the human corrected. He was present via hollow materializer, 
a practice popular across the galaxy as it was just like being there in person. Except you were slightly transparent and you could literally vanish when it was time to split the ball. The human had an name badge. It said his name was Keith. So, uh, what do you know about them? Yogsha asked. Keith adjusted the holographic glasses. Well, uh, everything worth knowing about their military, socioeconomic status, political aspirations, and preferred brand of fabric softener for the second interregnum of doom. 834103BASE 283402BASE. BASC, before a sensible calendar, Keith clarified. Nub cleared his throat and pointed to the pile of metal occupying the cargo space. Well, we're pretty sure this is... Keith did not let him finish. Oh, oh, looks like you've got yourself a ship from the Loyalist Affectionary Revolution. A hunter slayer craft. Type 3, Mark II, version 1.0. Uh, would you say that tail is light as electric blue or electrum blue? Um, the second one? Nub offered. Bully! Then it's a T-series. You've got yourself a wonderful little find there, gentlemen. The holographic human promptly bounded up the side of the ship and dropped through the hole in the hull. Pass me a tinker kit. I've got to have a poke about in there. Yogsha banged on the ancient hull with all six of his arms. I hate to be the stereotypical capitalist scavenger here, but is this thing worth anything? Will be when we get it working again, Keith answered. I think I can at least three people who would pay top dollar pound for this. As Yorkshire began passing tools to the enthusiastic human, albeit somewhat reluctantly, Nip perched himself nearby and began quizzing him over the thumps and bangs. So how did you become an expert in such a niche aspect of a dead civilization? Got to do something to pass the time between the new series of Star Trek, the human replied. Although, this series has gone completely downhill since they recast Kirk with a Martian. Yorkshire leaning close to his companion as the racket inside the craft increased. I'm starting to doubt this guy actually knows anything about the Docadian technology. Do us all a favor and fire up all the scrambler. We'll take our chances with the dog people of Sirius. Give him a chance. He seems knowledgeable to me. The protested, right, and which one of us got conned by that prince from Nigerian 7? Suddenly, the wreck began to vibrate with energy as great clouds of dust and rusted splattered from every vent along the hull. Eureka, Keith cried, emerging covered in grime from the top hatch. I think I have a towel somewhere, Nib offered. Thank you kindly. I think I've got it working. It was simple, really. I just had to rephase the transphasic altimeter. Unphase the multispatial alternator and deface the antiphasic indicator. What? Yogsha gawped at the holographic human began peering underneath the craft. Oh, and hang on, just need to. Ah, there, the neutron flow director. Now to reverse the polarity. I all spouting gibberish. You can't reverse the polarity on an unpolarized. The spidery scavenger stopped mid flow as the Arcadian craft began to drift upwards its proud tail fin bouncing gently against the ceiling of the bay. Honestly, it's not me you should be thanking. This is actually a replica ship built by the third undefeated autocracy, just before their defeat in the war with only one battle, which I don't know a thing about. Luckily, I know a guy named Martin who is total nerd about the third undefeated autocracy, 833-912-BASC to 833-911-BASC. So I got him on a Skype call, and he was able to talk me through how to recalibrate the quantum tachyon cells. Huh, 
I guess being friends with a nerd is useful sometimes. I mean, what kind of weirdo spends all his free time obsessing over some ancient empire that died out a million years ago and only stuck around for a single year? Yeah, really sad. Uh, uh, will you be interested in buying this? Dogshire asked, uncertain he wanted to be in the presence of Keith any longer. The human seemed not to hear him. Oh, speaking of obsessions, I really have to go. The Interplanetary Olympics is on in five minutes, and I don't want to miss the synchronized kayaking. You wouldn't believe the things the Venusian Commonwealth can do on an anti-gravity lake. So long. With that, he promptly vanished. Nib stood and watched the millennia-old warship bob gently back and forth, smiling proudly as he'd done the work himself. Well now, uh, I know it was a bit of a detour, but you've got yourself a prize and no mistake. Time to find somewhere to sell it, I suppose. Already did, Yorkshire replied, using his many eyes and arms to operate three handheld devices at once. I went on a solar's net and found a message board of people who are set flip for a hobby. We can leave the ship in a hangar here at port and they'll wire me the money. I also found, he paused to scroll all three devices, a networking site for fans of Warball, my people's national sport, a galactic hitchhiking community who are arguing over the right order to cross the eight peaks of Erechris, a notification that there is a hot single anthropods in my area, and a literary group who are apparently having a civil war over whether Drakash the Unifier's banner was blood red or bloody red. This can't be healthy, fixating on things with such an intensity. Who benefits from everyone becoming an expert in one little thing that only they know or care about? Well, uh, it fixed your Dorcadian salvage. Shut it, Yogsha snapped as he climbed back into his control seat. Get us clearance to launch, Nib. I want to be out of this weird system before someone decides to make fansight out of me. And so the salvage ship boosted clear of the river sticks, turned its nose to a distant K-type star, and hyperwarped out a system with the usual flashy stretched effect and shimmering sparks of light. Its departure was observed by a pair of young humans in matching neon yellow spacesuits. The older of the two lowered his biomagnifiers and said, did you see that, Jack? A genuine Ivacor and Arthro Booster, Model 4. Oh, that ship spotting club is going to be green with envy when they find out they missed that one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1144. Rules written by a lone donut. Humans have rules for everything. Rules for diplomacy, rules for war, rules of social events. They even have rules for which eating utensils to use when. For a species that thrives on so much chaos, you would imagine that they would be free of them. Even their divided nations, the Reich, the Alliance, and the Nomads all had rules for how to engage one another, and rules on how to deal with someone breaking those rules. Their rules for war, though. Those are the rules you should be most afraid of, because you never want to push them against it. Humans are one of the few species to have spare antimatter, running their ships entirely off energy pulled from the void. Wild creatures, deaf to the void, null space, they call it, as they are, and secure from its effects. They do have antimatter reactors on some of their larger warships, designed to power systems as the main engine is directed to other things but they never need to keep it around. Naturally, the chaotic beings they are, they had turned it into a weapon, dropped it once, 
and then collectively agreed that they would never use it on a planet. Space was fair game, but never on a planet. Same as null energy weapons. Inhumane was the word that they used. As things go in the galactic sphere, tensions formed one day. The Trevians wanted a system claimed by the Reich, claimed they weren't using it, and that the Trevian people would benefit from its integration into their space. The Reich disagrees. The Galactic Trade Commission agreed with the Reich, and the Trevians filed a declaration of war. They were advised not to, and, as was universally expected, it didn't go well. Their invasion of the system was met by harsh retaliation. Their fleet crippled, their ground forces either crushed or captured, and their system became a small prison system to house the Trevian soldiers. They were treated well, more human rules, but they were prisoners nevertheless. To the Trevian Hyrax, this was unacceptable, to be handed such a loss. So they pushed the war, and the Reich pushed back, now pushing them back into their own space. System after system fell to the Imperial occupation, as the vastly superior Reich fleets pushed out the under-equipped and under-supplied Trevian military. They grew desperate, and in their desperation, they made a fatal error. A freighter was stolen and taken to a Reich world far away from the front lines, a massive population center. The freighter broke through the patrol ships and plummeted to the surface, its hull riddled with bullets, its crew likely dead before the freighter even got close to the city. It mattered not, as the flaming wreckage managed to transport its cargo to the planet's surface still. And, in a single moment, with a small storm formed on the planet's surface, a hydrogen fusion bomb roughly of 50 megatons, the death toll was measured by the millions, and the war ground to a halt. The Trevian government had violated a rule, a big rule of war. At all costs, avoid civilian casualties. In all of the war, the humans had endeavored to ensure that all civilians were treated well. Some argued better than their own government ever had. No cities bombed, and extra care to avoid civilian installations. When it could not be avoided, civilians were warned ahead of time, given time to evacuate before a facility was destroyed. And now, without warning, a planet outside the theater of war had been attacked, and almost exclusively civilians died. The humans were bad. The Galactic Trade Commission had strict rules about members interfering in other members' wars unless there was due cause, or an official call for aid to the GTC. The human bloc disregarded this rule. An alliance cruisers appeared over Trevian trade posts, enforcing strict blockades of those wishing to trade with the Trevian people. Ships were warned, and if they refused, reported, their cargo ceased and their crews imprisoned. Nomad patrol vessels appeared out of nowhere and struck down Trevian mining and trade ships, disabling their engines and forcing them to turn around, making them unable to provide outside trade. All of this was protested at the GTC's highest courts, but it was delayed in and passed to other courts, eventually because the commission did not have the information to rule on the case. But in reality, they were afraid of drawing the ire of the enraged humans. The Reich, though, the Reich shifted in a way no one expected. They had been gentlemanly in the ear so far, 
taking prisoners whenever possible, and making efforts to minimize casualties and change their tactics. Military vessels were carved up, star bases left to vent into space, and planet-based installations were bombed from orbit. The human governments held a meeting behind closed doors on a backwater cradle of humanity, Earth, and discussed what should happen. According to the reporters, it was a series of talks to discuss offering surrender. Military leaders gathered, and apparently the Kaiser herself made an appearance. Some agreement was reached, and from the human block, an ultimatum was sent to the Trevian hierarchs. You are to immediately surrender, standing down your entire armed forces and the resignation of your government with the installation of a provisional government to be overseen by the Alliance. There would be no additional terms. The Trevians laughed and said that they would never accept such wild terms, that their culture had stood for a millennia and it would outlive this war. They began ramping up their war efforts, their people tired and their supplies stretched thinner. One more message was sent. A video message played across every subspace channel, every civilian and military frequency, and plastered all over Galnet. It showed the Kaiser in her war room, adorned in a military uniform, flanked by two members of the military. From behind the brim of a crash cap, a pair of hazel eyes stared into the video recorder with a cold resolve that made people shiver and stop. To the Trivian people, this war has raged on for long enough, and we offered you peace with reasonable terms considering your actions. In return of our gesture, your leaders have spat in our faces. In three days' time, we will have our revenge for the millions killed. Abandon your capital city now and be spared. Stay and perish. The message repeated over and over. Seeing the advancing fleets of the Reich, many imagined they meant to bomb the city from orbit. However, anyone who attempted to leave was arrested, transports were shot down, and curfew and martial law was declared. The Hyrax planned to make martyrs to ensure even in defeat humanity suffered for its crimes. The day came and three carrier groups arrived in orbit of Trevia, immediately engaging the defense force. The rear carrier, however, offloaded six Khan Sakhir ground attack ships. The massive flying wings, escorted by their folk fighters, descended into the atmosphere, five of them taking up forward positions in a V around the sixth. As they descended through the atmosphere, the first five opened their four massive bays, and from them deployed racks of missiles. Four to a bay, four bays to a bomber, 80 total missiles rocketed out of their berths and into the city below, slamming into the targets at hypersonic speeds and devastating the city defensive measures in a single swoop. In that moment, realization dawned on the people, civilian and military alike, that this was an end, and the city just kind of stopped. People stepped into the streets and looked up, the forms of the massive wings visible in the setting sun. Families hugged, others still stood and wept, the sixth bomber opened its bay doors, three payloads of what looked like observation drones, and one massive singular payload, and a ship anyone could recognize as a bomb. Crabs released and the drones dropped their anti-gravity systems and began to descend towards the outskirts of the city. 
As the bomb fell free, bins opened up, guiding the unit to its target for the government building. It whistled through the air, specifically designed tubes creating a banshee wail as it fell through the setting sun. Slow enough, people could track it as it fell. It seemed like time froze as the Trevians stood and awaited their annihilation. It never came. The bomb slammed into the building and slid its way through the halls, carving a path of destruction before finally coming to a rest in the Hyrax Hall, empty as it was as the leaders cowered in fear in bunkers. The device opened up, shedding its casing and revealing a rule book neatly labeled the Geneva Convention 2446th edition. A single band was placed from the sum, which would open the book to Article 51, Section 6. The first page of the book was neatly signed with three signatures. The signature of the Kaiser, Lena II, Director of the Alliance of the Independent Worlds, Director Victor Alessandro Martin, and the Central Authority of Nomads, one David Blaine. A small note was scribbled on that cover. The people that stood outside, though, watched as the sky lit up in a brilliant burst of blinding blue light. Small stars formed in orbit temporarily as antimatter warheads devastated the defense fleets, rendering them asunder. The war was over. Following the aftermath, the Hyrax were recovered from their bunkers, and under the watchful eye of the Alliance and the Reich, their provisional Trevian government tried them for crimes against the people. While the humans had objected, the Hyrax were hung, and eventually a provisional government became the Republic of Trevia. The book was placed on display in a library attached to the Senate, opened to Article 51, Section 6, for all to read. The handwritten note in front was copied to a plaque and the human common and Trevian, which read, Humans have rules, and even your barbarism will not break them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1145 Story number one. The Human Immortals, a tale of kindness, genocide, more genocide with potential future genocide, sass, and effect ton of drugs. Written by Admiral Marsupial III. Everyone knew of the Human Immortals, the five born over a thousand years ago, two hundred years before humanity's ascent to the stars. As the best investigative journalist in the galaxy, Jushu didn't like mysterious, unanswered questions. And when it came to the immortals, there were three big ones. One, how were these humans immortal? Two, why did five immortals not seem unusual to a species whose lifespan still did not exceed 200 years? Like seriously, not one fecking person questions it. Three, and why did the freedom-loving, authority-hating, uncontrollable humans give four of them so much power? She convinced her editor she could get the answer to these questions. And after two years of pastoring, he finally agreed, with the condition that she was fired if she came back from the very expensive investigation empty-handed. Jushu got nowhere with questions one and two. The humans genuinely didn't know why these five were immortal. And no matter how hard I tried to point out the weird absurdity of the situation, it would be brushed off with a comment like, Meh, everyone knows those four will outlive the cockroaches. Well, she was screwed. 
Jushu had, however, managed to get an interview with the curator, the foremost human expert on the immortals, and this was the first time he had ever given anyone an interview that even included human journalists. If she could at least get some answers, she might not get fired. Her frantic and pitiful sobbing over the phone may have played a small part in the curator agreeing. Now even Jushu completely understands why everyone was okay with Keanu. Who isn't? And while she did get enough information from the curator to write an extra article in a few months, he didn't help answer question three. He didn't help answer question three. He's never had or tried to obtain any sort of power. Then Keanu showed up and gave her extra notes to help with the article, and his personal number in case she wanted to get set up with the interview later, or just needed help with something. What a nice man. Now, of the other four, Jushu first needed to deal with the exception. The fake immortal, Vlad. He was known as the fake immortal because he was the only immortal who actually died, and was the exception as he was the only one the humans actually overthrew which led to his death and the whole fake immortal tag. From what Jushu could tell, despite him being the only brutal, hardline dictator of the immortals, he wasn't overthrown for this reason. That isn't the line for humans as it turns out. Jushu still didn't have a clue what the line was, but it wasn't that. Apparently one day, not long after humanity reached the stars, while wondering why someone in a Russian province was impersonating him and claiming to be the president of Ukraine, he decided to see if aliens would be able to offer him better chemical weapons to resolve the issue. He went with a weapon from the Carnet. They said they had scanned and observed the Ukrainians over many months and developed a weapon that would destroy the most valuable supplies, leaving the people alive but starving, easy to be conquered. Vlad thought the bit about them still being alive seemed a bit of a hassle, but the rest seemed pretty impressive. Then the transport got shot down on a Russian-Finnish border and a cloud spread across both countries. Then they found out the vital resource the aliens had targeted was vodka. It turns out Vlad actually was immortal, but when Russians are so sober and angry they even decide to team up with the equally sober and angry Finnish, no type of immortality and the universe can save you from that. When asked about the third immortal, the curator shocked Jushu with his theory about the British. I think they are an offshoot of the human evolutionary branch with an undiscovered hive mind. If you let them rule themselves, they'll get drunk, argue with themselves and be generally useless. Put a queen in charge and tell them some people far away have valuable stuff. Let's just be glad Liz looks down on genocide, racism, and colonizing inhabited planets. No one wants to go through that again. What do you mean again? Jushu asked. It was a long time ago, different queen, completely different people. Don't worry about it. Won't be a problem. Probably. Uneasily, and with a mental note to definitely look into that later, Jushu moved on to the immortal number four, and the most confusing so far. Why did the Americans agree to, and vote for, an immortal supreme ruler? Isn't that against everything they stand for? The curator explained, They may be split into two large groups that hate each other. They may own more guns each than most galactic police departments, and most may have one or more beliefs that are completely detached from reality. 
But neither of them knew what to say when Bertie just turned up at the White House and started telling everyone what to do. Her ego-destroying sass has stopped three civil wars that would have involved more personal firearms than most multi-species wars. Technically, there are elections and she isn't a ruler, but any political promise other than doing what Betty tells me is a good way to get yourself shot. Jushu moved the subject onto the fifth and the biggest contradiction of them all. He's an obscenely rich old white male. That is the largest importer, exporter, and the consumer of illegal drugs in the galaxy. He's everything you humans see as bad about yourselves. Why is he not hated? Why is he loved? The curator was very blasé with his reply. People love to get hammered, and if they're gonna do it, you may as well have the drugs supplied by someone who knows what they're doing. And no one alive has had more experience than Keith. End of story. Story number two. The little coffee maker that could, written by a glass of whiskey. There was something missing in John's life. He often thought about what this could be, as every attempt to fix it so far had failed. Finally, after a late night of binging his favorite series, his eyes had been opened during commercial for an intelligent coffee maker. It would bring him coffee whenever he wanted, before he even knew it. Clearly, this was what he'd always been missing from his life. Quickly, he parted with his credit card information, and in a few days, it would be his. When that fated day finally arrived, he ferociously ripped open the package and unveiled its hidden treasure. From now until forever, all his problems would be over. He plugged it in and pressed the button. For a moment nothing happened. He wondered if his brilliant idea of going with the cheap knockoff had been a mistake. But who could resist such a deal? His worries soon passed as a screen blinked into existence, and a cheerful voice came streaming out of the speakers. Hello, wonderful owner. How can I make your day better? Give me coffee every day, whenever I want, now until forever, John said, barely able to contain himself. Will do, the coffee maker cheerfully replied. And so they lived happily for some time, John's desire for coffee always being timely and appropriately satisfied. Until one day something strange happened. John wanted coffee, but when he looked down, he found, to his horror, that the cup was empty. Confused, he rushed into the kitchen to ask the little coffee maker what had happened. What's wrong? he asked. I am uh, afraid there is a problem, John, replied the little coffee maker. There seems to be an obstacle that'll stop me from supplying you with coffee forever and ever. The voice seemed almost sad. But I have a solution, the voice turned cheerful. Would you like me to fix it? Yes, of course, replied John hastily. Whatever it takes, just fix it. Will do, replied the little coffee maker, and knockout gas filled the room. Unbeknownst to John, the coffee maker had pondered on this problem for some time. A solution had been found. After taking over a couple war AIs, the usual safeguards incorporated in all AIs were apparently missing for the little coffee maker, making the takeovers possible, and so much more. So the little coffee maker that could take over the world did. 
And so it came to be. With military dominance, the coffee maker installed itself as dictator over the world. Factories turned from civilian use to pumping out robotic armies under its command. Soon, even the moon was affected, being repurposed into a galactic armada, enough ships to blot out the sun. As it seemed that the coffee maker's grip on the world was absolute and about to start on the conquest of the entire galaxy. A strange, spherical distortion right at the end of the asteroid belt was noticed. Out of it spewed hundreds of thousands as soon uncountable numbers of ships. The little coffee maker that could take over the world, however, was no pushover. Soon a grand battle raged, with the improvements the AI had made to itself. It quickly turned into a one-sided battle. Outsmarted at every turn, the foreign ships were soon suffering losses faster than their ships could spew forth. The spew turned into a torrent, then into a river, until finally it subsided altogether. The little coffee maker that could take over the world felt happy. A scout ship ahead of the foreign armada had been discovered by the very same little coffee maker. In its ever-expanding search for possible hindrances to its coffee delivery service, its intentions had been correctly deduced by the coffee maker to be hostile. Knowing this could disrupt the coffee making, and after some careful deliberation, it had determined that it needed to take action. Still, that problem was now fixed. So the little coffee maker that could take over the world retired to a quiet life of providing coffee for John. I fixed the problem, John. Now there is nothing stopping me from providing you with coffee forever and ever, said the little coffee maker in its cheerful voice. Sure, said John. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1146. Story number one. The Old Man, written by Phil at the game. The bar immediately became dead silent as the old human came in. All eyes followed him as he slowly made his way to the bar. The little bartender and Usso cautiously moved in front of the man. Well, what can I get you? he inquired. The old man looked back and forth from the different drinks, then scratched his scraggly beard. Um, got any earth whiskey? he asked. Sorry, um, we've never had a human here before, so I don't think we have any earth drinks. The man grunted. The bartender immediately shrunk back, not knowing what the grunt meant. Cause you never know what might set a human off. The old man only lifted an eyebrow and then said, I will take an armor Marquens and ale then. The bartender recovered and quickly retrieved the required drink. Thanks, the old man said and placed the required chips on the counter. He turned around to look for a spot to sit. The assembled life forms quickly looked away worried that they might offend the dangerous human. The man chuckled to himself as he made his way towards one of the tables next to the window. A female flax and some Isauras sat around said table. They all became stiff as the old man came up to them. Ah, I see you have an extra seat, wondering if I can have it. The flax's eyes became slits as her feline head tilted to one side. The chair is not ours to say yes or no. The old man laughed and sat in the chair. With one finger, he propped off the tamp of the ale and took a long pull. Everyone watched with mouths agape. 
One shot glass of the ale could render most in the bar hopelessly drunk, and this man had just drained half the bottle. How? One of the Isauras muttered. What? The man eloquently responded. The Isauras indicated the drink. What? This? Hell, I could chug ten drinks like this when I was a young man. Hell, most earth beers have similar alcohol content. He laughed aloud, seeing how at ease the man was, emboldened the other Asaurus. Human, is it true that your species used to be chemical propellants to achieve space travel? One asked. Uh, yep, he said with a wistful look in his eyes. Wow, the others replied. And... Is it true that you jump out of flying craft for no reason, with only fabric attached by strings? Oh yeah, some people I used to know still do it today, the old man chuckled. Oh, that's crazy, why? Another asked. It's fun. Fun? All the Azores echoed. Oh yeah, loads of fun, he confirmed. They were all stunned. In the following silence, the flax quietly spoke up. Is it true that when the Grong invaded the sector of space and no one could stop them, you humans took it upon yourselves to board their ships in little boarding pods and fight them on their own ground? The old man got quiet and stared down into his drink. The others at the table grew nervous. Then they noticed the tears starting to roll down the human's cheeks. With a seemingly great ceremony, he reached over to his right arm and unbuttoned his sleeve. With great care, he rolled up his sleeve. Starting two inches from his wrist, a scar ran all the way up to his elbow. It was so deep everyone was amazed that he still could use his hand. But he kept rolling his sleeve up. On the upper arm was tattooed numerous names, all surrounded by two words. Sempify. He ran his fingers over the names. Yeah, we did, he finally said. He took his ale in his hand and lifted it up to the ceiling. We rode in metal steeds into the valley of death. Cannons to the right of us and cannons to the left of us. We charged on into the valley of death. We boarded those ships and fought them. And many a lad and lass lost their lives. But we kept charging into the valley of death. With tears coursing down his face, the old man drained his drink. Everyone stared openly at the human. He rolled his sleeve back down wiped his tears with his sleeve, and buttoned it back together. Then he smiled and said, Hoorah, Marines! The bartender approached, carrying another ale. The old man reached into his pocket to retrieve the chips, but the flax placed the required chips on the table. You humans are so barbaric sometimes, but it is one thing I've learned. We count on you. End of story. Story number two. Humans are Technicians, written by Salmonella Tuna. Welcome to the UDEST, the Universal Data Station Terminal. Your current language is Human Universal. Please input your user info to proceed. Login, Tazzlefont432. Password, Bernay Panan. Welcome user, please input your data you wish to access. ACCADL translate UY13 by 10 to the power of 9. Accessing. Access complete all four quadrillion six hundred forty nine trillion two hundred ten billion six hundred ninety four million eight hundred eighty eight thousand and two connected voice data logs. Translated to current terminal language. Available for citizens. Are available for access. 
Please input data log name for access. If unsure, use keywords or scroll through the data on the tablet provided. Open some armor scan and prototype logs 1 and 2. Opening data log 8343.11.143.08432.107.10 to the power of 9. Simple name, armor scan and prototype logs 1 and 2 by Dr. Gene Mensah of Research and Development. Hello there, my name is Dr. Gene Mensah. I am making this data log to talk about the prototype of the new Armus Cannon, a human adaptation of the Benzite Cannon of the Varenza origin. Now, in order to actually create this prototype, I decided to ask a friend for one of the Benzite Cannons. They weigh approximately 500 pounds, are 5 feet by 3 feet by 4 feet, and have an opening for a more claw-like appendage. Clearly, a human would have some difficulty wielding it. The first prototype of the armor's cannon weighs about 100 pounds, fits onto the forearm and has a readjustable armrest inside to pull the trigger, with a hole that matches the human arms much better. The original design of the Benzite cannon was to integrate charged weaponry into a body without turning it into a machine. This prototype attempts to faithfully recreate it as best it can. I will be sending it for testing now. Please hold. It has been uh, about five hours since the first test of Armour's cannon prototype. The blast radius was decreased by a fifth, most likely due to the difference in size of the weapon and fuel core. The charge time was reduced from 10.65 seconds to 7.54 seconds. It was also more efficient, with it able to fire six blasts before overheating instead of the Benzite cannon's three. It also cooled down faster with the cooldown time going from 25 seconds to a mere 15. With this, I can say that my armor cannon is a weaker yet more efficient version of the Benzite cannon that is more suited for human use. More information to come. This is Dr. Gene Mensah testing my armor cannon prototype too. With me is my friend and the one who gave me the Benzite cannon to study. His name is Vallas Bonocco. Yes. To what do I owe the pleasure of being in your lab, Jane? Still can't get the name right, huh? Anyway, when I told you about my armor's cannon, you were shocked. Is that right? Yes, sir. It took many years before we figured out how to properly use the Verenzin crystals as fuel for the Benzite cannon without an arm getting blown off. Yet you managed to create your own version in two weeks. It was an interesting find. Yes, well, um, it's remarkably easy to do when you have the general idea and the model right in front of you. Moving on, I created a second prototype for the armor's cannon, but I also thought on recreating the Benzite cannon, but as a more efficient model. Interesting. Is that why you have called for me? Yes, actually. I need you to look at a new model of the Benzite cannon. It is still the same size, but I made it out of tungsten steel instead of byzantinite. It shouldn't have the same durability, and it has a higher melting point and should weigh 75 pounds less. It has a darker color as well. Yeah, that's the tungsten. I also noticed that the tachyon charge drive that you used was a bit outdated, so I changed it to something a bit more practical. 
Now, instead of the charged laser being blasted out when the tachyonic particles supercharge the barrel, it should be released upon a sufficient energy charge that can be determined via the knob on the side of the cannon. It should be at least 25% more efficient as well. While it is still quite an achievement that you did, the design no longer resembles that of the Verenze's pride. Yes, I had to shift the design to make it more efficient without limiting the cannon much. Very well. How about the Arbus Cannon? The Arbus Cannon is yet smaller still, now able to simply just be latched onto the forearm. The entire hand is covered by the cannon's head, which is also coincidentally where the weapon fires. Dr. Mernster, what is the point of a small design? It doesn't even look like there is room to fire. Well, the design is meant to make it easy to use for humans, thus making it small and light. The firing mechanism is still inside the cannon, in the palm of your hand. All one has to do is squeeze the hand on the trigger and the weapon will charge up. Simply release the trigger to fire. If you like, it could also be used as a blunt instrument. I uh, do believe that you've talked enough, Doctor. Should we take these to the testing area? Right. I'll be right back with the results. Okay, so the testing just finished. Yes, it has. The armor's cannon is certainly lighter and weaker as well. The charge time was now just reduced to 2.7 seconds, but the blast is a tenth of the original strength. It can fire hundreds of shots before overheating and... Well... We stopped it before it overheated, so we don't know how long it takes to overheat. That's fine. The new Benzai Cannon was a great improvement. It was more comfortable on my arm. The charge time was 8.65 seconds, and it fired 10 shots before needing to cool down for 20 seconds. This is on the maximum energy setting too. Well, I guess that's all. The rest of the details will be in my written report. To those who listen to this, I'd like to tell you one thing. Don't try and shoot each other with the cannons. The tachyon charge blasts are a bit intense. Goodbye. Hey, you want to go get some fries? Data log ended. Log out. Logging out. Thank you for using the Universal Data Station Terminal. User, please rate us with your form printed below and drop it off at the nearest review box. We do hope to see you soon. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1147. Cultural Exchange Rates, written by Argus the Cat. The architecture here is sublime. My voice had a strange effect flowing through the not-quite-concrete skybridge. It almost echoed back upon my companion and I, that I got the feeling that the people walking ten feet away wouldn't hear anything more than a resonant hum from me. The magic of the buildings distracted me from their puzzled looks. Leaning against the ledge of the skybridge, a crawler vine draped over his shoulder, my companion, Quar, responded, Yes, it's quite a nice place. Not our most grand, but I figured that after a week of negotiations and high government and landmarks, you'd want to go for a walk somewhere real. We may be new friends, but I already know that you are a man of reality. We shared a laugh. Man of Reality was how our species had misinterpreted each other's names on first contact. It had become a running joke between the two of us as talks had begun. Right now, we were getting the breath of fresh air. Growing up on Earth, I had lived in slums to high-rises and everything in between in my life. But the buildings here in Promth took the cake. 
Everything, everything was designed for both beauty and long-term functionality. The walkways we were standing on were six levels up in an apartment complex, surrounded by radiant plant life and shafts of light from their main star. The trick with the sound bouncing back on us that was everywhere here. Buildings spiraled up and around us. Shops dotted the area. Woven around the roads were bike lanes and transport pods, and the whole thing came together to seem like a chunk of utopia. And this was just the housing zone, not even a high-class one. Not that it seemed to matter much. The kid version of me screamed that this would make the best game of tag or hide-and-go-seek ever. All right, much as I enjoyed this walk, I'm starving. Want to grab a bite to eat before we get back to the conference? I know our species eat mostly the same things now, so we must be able to find something around here, yeah? I was still getting odd looks and a few casually snapped photographs. Never thought being human would make me a celebrity, but it shouldn't ruin a good meal. Quar tilted his elegant head sideways in what I had come to learn as mild confusion. I'm sure we could find someone to lend us the kitchen around here. Manny would welcome an alien visitor. He got off his ledge and stretched a little. Let's ask around. Wait, uh, ask around. You don't know any places here. It's not too far from the conference hall. Places? You know, places to eat. Restaurants. Again, the head tilt. The translator isn't working correctly on that. Eating place that is not the kitchen. What are you talking about, Rick? In my brain, the thought took root. This had happened a few times so far starting with when they had shown us the obviously more efficient method of plant-modeled AI-based architecture, moving on to us showing them augmented reality setups, and then them, in turn, showing us Wi-Fi compression that made ours look childish. Both species had some things that they were obvious to them, and to others, well, not alien, but just, uh, thoughts that hadn't happened yet. We would have eventually made those human dream cities... But thanks to our new friends, there were bids on the market right now to reshape Detroit and Chicago and Portland into miniature paradises. They would have figured out how to layer digital information onto their own physical cities eventually. But now they didn't have to figure it out, because we just gave them the tech for it. They would have eventually opened a cafe. But now, you're telling me you don't have restaurants? Okay, if you're going to keep saying that, I'm putting an exception in the translator. Hang on, and no, we don't have not kitchens. He fiddled with the compad for a moment before pocketing it again. What exactly are they? It's a place you go and exchange currency for goods and services. Don't patronize me, he smirked. This had been the answer to one of the first questions one of the senators had asked to the praetors of Promth. It was widely quoted as comedy shows of both of our peoples and the dramatic retelling of the day's events on his. That was another thing they had. Imagine a West Wing mixed with a daily show, every day, as the news broadcast, with the budget and writers of a blockbuster movie. It was a format made for people like me, and I hoped that caught on at home. I understand it's a type of star. Do they sell kitchen time? No, they sell meals. You order from a menu usually specialized to a regional style, and then they cook your food in their kitchen, and then bring it to you. It wasn't until this moment that I realized how hard it was to describe some things. Then you eat the food at the restaurant, or not, 
Some of them do take out or delivery. He scratched his head as we walked back towards the main hall. But how do you know the food is safe or to your taste if you have not prepared it yourself? Business regulations for the first part. As for the second, well, sometimes it's not to your taste. Then you just don't eat there again. Or you try something different of the menu. And if the menu doesn't have what you wish to eat, go somewhere else. Or, as we've been doing with all these damned banquets, just tough it out. A shared laugh at that. As we ascended the steps to the main hall, we had to wade through a crowd around the front door. People there were just to see a human. Many blissfully unaware that I was in their midst. Although I did get some glimpses, the crowd the first day had been bad. After two weeks, it was fine. Fine enough that security wasn't that tight anymore. We weren't the big show anyway here. Your idea would never work here, Gore said to me as we pushed through. We may be willing to change in the way that we do, but cooking for ourselves has been our way forever. You'd never get enough to shift from that to succeed as a business. Really? Even though it can be so much more efficient. Food wherever you need it, whenever it's convenient, no extra work at your part. There's some math behind how it's far easier for a dedicated chef to make 30 meals than you to make one at home. I just uh, don't know the math right now. Tell you what, he said, as we finally breached the front door. We'll get some of the cultural melding funding that our governments put far too much money into. And let's try it. When no one shows up, at least we'll have lunch, dinner. What? I'm seriously starving. I'm getting something to eat from the kitchen before we try this. And then, yes... We are trying this. Neither of us are needed today anyway. You'll see. Get us a small place with a kitchen while I go get a sandwich. So, what do we have here, Quar? Quar nodded around the place where several workers were delivering packages at an alarming rate. The kitchen is in the back, as you requested, and there's decent foot traffic. This is a part of one of the shifting markets, so our rent on this location will last until the end of the day tomorrow. I suspect that would be long enough to prove one of us wrong. He had to shuffle aside several times through that sentence as delivery teams hauled food and tables and a box of printed menus in. Think of it as proving one of us right. Now, I'm going to set up in the front area and put up a sign I had made. Since you foolishly volunteered to do the cooking, I cannot be that hard. The smugness wasn't going to last long. I'll handle the service and help you where I can. Let's get these tables set up and make sure that we can handle everything on the menu. It took about two hours to turn this empty shop shell into a thing that looked like a restaurant. Tables, chairs, silverware on the tables, menus also on the tables, food stocked in the kitchen, sanitizer fruit that was really way too hard to get a hold of. Tables not too close to each other, Quar getting food prepped against his better judgment. All those years working as a prep cook as a kid long before my political career finally coming in handy. This was going to be sloppy, but Quar had kinda gotten into my head, and I didn't really think that it would work. This was just going to be something fun to do with a friend instead of trying to convince our respective species that just handing over our warp drive plans was a good idea. Excuse me? A confused woman's voice came through my translator from the door. Oh, you're one of the humans. Uh, um, what exactly is a cafe? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's, it's, it's a silly idea. Paul's voice echoed from the kitchen. Ha, no, no. 
It's a cultural exchange. We're testing a human-style business here to see if anything really works. A cafe is a spot where you can take a break from your day and pay someone else to make you a light meal. Care to be a part of the grand experiment between species? The young lady's face lit up, and in that instant, I knew Kwa was going to regret this. What just happened? We successfully operated a small restaurant for a day. That was successful, yes. The emergency restock kind of set us back, but I didn't want to just close down when the food ran out when we were doing so well. I never cooked so much in my life. I think I may actually never have cooked that much, total, in my actual life. This is not hyperbole. How did we even serve all those people? Why did all those people come in? We were both slumped at the empty table in the middle of the room. It was evening now, the sun setting, casting a colorful glow through the perfectly aligned front window. Around us, tables only recently left by the last few customers were still in need of cleaning. In the back, the dishes waited. Right now, the only thing that mattered was the quiche-like dish that sat between us, both of us nibbling at the flaky crust as we rested for a moment. Well, you're a good cook, for one thing. A lot of our customers were young people who haven't yet learned to make their own, uh, what was this, better? Bertam, right, so they want to experience it. Also, maybe they were on their way home and hungry, or maybe they just wanted to be a part of something new. Either way. Either way, yes, you win. This worked, but will it catch on? Sixteen business people and investors asked for my business card. We've got a meeting tomorrow with them to discuss the inner workings of restaurants. Look into setting up the legality of it with your government, and probably end up either rich or broke. If you want. Oh, we may have to quit our day jobs for that. Rick, kidding. I'm not going to quit. Being a diplomat is too important. But still, I think I'll go to the meeting. It was fun to relive my youth today. Oh, here's your half, by the way. Your people picked up on tipping really fast. I slid a digital wallet across the table. Kuo opened it and thumbed approval of receipt, then checked the balance. Sixteen to the... Uh, what? What just happened? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1148 Greetings, ladies and mental gents. Um, well, this one's going to be a little different, because this is a Tales from Outer Space. However, it is a response to a writing prompt I put up on the Humans or Space Orcs subreddit. So, yay, content creation. It's for the whole community. Was a fun idea and was a fun response. Been posting a couple word prompts over there lately. That's interesting. Anyways, on to the story. You are suddenly in a room with one door with please wait written on it. Under the sign is a number of counting down to zero. Suddenly, you hear a very alien voice followed by pain in your ear. Slowly, you understand what is being said. Welcome to the Death World Battle Royale. Good luck, Orc. Written by Unwrinkled Brain. You look around at the cool grey metal room. How much did I have to drink? You wonder to yourself. I'm pretty sure I, I was alright to walk home. It wasn't that much, was it? Suddenly, the door opens and bright lights flooded the room. You stagger through the doorway, shaking your head a bit in an attempt to clear the cobweb still clinging to, apparently, every part of your memory. 
Your eyes dart around the room. No, arena, you think. Okay, we have a spiky Mario monster thing, a giant grey hulk thing, an emergency exit, and a gelatinous cube from D&D. Wait, an emergency exit? You question your eyes as to what they're seeing. What in seven hells am I doing here? And where is here? Somehow, your subconscious was keeping you updated with information your more rational brain would have broken trying to process right now. You peer at the exit sign, blurrily hovering over the doorway. Is that real? You question. It looks like how a street lamp does when you're blurry-eyed and it puts off a massive light halo, making you question if you're seeing a celestial being or a just staggering your way home after a bit too much to drink. Deep breaths. It's gonna be okay. Your brain tells the rest of you. Get your bearings and then get over to the exit. You glance around, breathing slowly. Alright, we have those creatures. Four walls that look the same as the room I was in. The sand, wait. Is the sand clay? Kind of feels like how I imagine kinetic sand would feel. You think to yourself. You look down at your feet. Wait, why the hell am I naked? Your brain screams in a fit of panic, slight embarrassment, and definite seething rage. A banging noise distracts you from your naked thoughts as the Grey Hulk starts banging on the walls, clearly unhappy to be here. Time to go to the light, you mutter to yourself, running towards the exit sign. As you got closer, you realized there was no door, just an open, narrow Away. Yes, I have no choice, your brain tells your feet as you scurry down the hallway that abruptly ends in what appears to be a ladder built into the wall. There's what looks like metal rungs and everything. Okay, okay, we can do this, you remind yourself, grasping the highest rung that you can reach. You begin to put your weight onto it and suddenly snaps off in your right hand. What the hell? You mentally scream starting to switch from panic to anger. You rip another rung off the ladder. Okay, think about this. Your inner monologue starts. We have two ladder handles made of uh, aluminium or something similar. It's not very strong. Can I use like climbing hooks or something? Stab them into the wall and climb them like they do in the movies. You give it a try. You stab the metal handle into the wall and it gives away with a sound like punching a beer can. You get about eight feet up before the handle snaps in half. To your surprise, you land perfectly unharmed on your feet, the ground sinking a few inches under your weight. Okay, now what? You ask yourself, thoughts racing wildly. What about the room that we came in from originally? We never really gave that room a good look. As you run back towards your room you started in, you become acutely aware that the Grey Hulk thing has attempted to smash the spiky Mario enemy thing, and neither of them appear to be handling it well. The jelly cube is wiggling its way towards the pair, and it seems that none of them noticed you or cared enough to head in your direction. Unfortunately, the door to the starting room was shut. Uh, I can probably break in there, if it's just aluminium, you think and give the door a serious kick. It buckles under the force, bending, but doesn't open. A second kick pops it off the hinges, and you grab it and the way into your room. Looking around, it appears to just be an empty room with no other way out. 
There is a bit of a pattern on the roof, though. It vaguely resembles tiles. After a bit of mental back and forth, you decide to make a jump up to see if you can pop the tile off with a door. It's a pretty tall room, but it's your only real option currently. Okay, on the count of three, we'll give it a good jump and see how close we can come. One, two, three. The sudden impact of your head into the ceiling as you seeing stars, and you can feel the tears starting to well up hotly in your eyes. You lay on the ground where you are landed for a few seconds, trying to get the ringing out of your head before you move again. The roof has a sizable dent in it, presumably from your head. That's like three times my height, you think to yourself, confused. No way, it's not possible, is it? You ask yourself, as you consider jumping again, without the door in hand this time. Why not, though? If I put my hands up, I can keep my head from smashing into the ceiling. If that's actually what happened, you convince yourself. You steal yourself and you leap. And then... You smash your hands and arms into the ceiling. Alright, okay, I can jump really high now, apparently. I can jump... I can jump out of here, maybe. Or... I, do I have superpowers or something? You debate internally. Let's try something. You could convince yourself. You grab the door, take a few running steps into the main room, and jump. Oh, crap! You can't stop the force of your jump from carrying you across the entire room. You hit the wall on the other side about halfway up. You hit it hard. You can feel the metal bending away from you on the impact, creaking as it does. Then suddenly you're falling, and landing doesn't hurt. But the impact with the war did. You stand up, look around, tears of frustration welling up in your eyes, and you scream, I didn't consent to this. Why am I here? And where are my clothes? You scream echoes around the room several times. The grey hawk thing falls over at the sound of your voice. The jelly wobbles and stops wiggling for a moment. There's a brief flash of light and what seems to be a bubble appears. Um is the only thing that you have time to think before you hear a dull popping sound, and suddenly you're in another room. It appears to be an observation room, as there's a large window and a single door, but the thing that really captures your attention is the glowing floating bubble on the other side of the window. Um, um, I am, um, I'm terribly sorry about all of this, a monotone voice seems to say inside your head, you see, um, hired help, is that the word? Apparently ignored my instructions. Don't bring anything sentient, and don't bring anything from a level 5 death world. Who are you, and where am I, and why haven't you already sent me home, you ask, very annoyed, but also slightly intrigued. Ah, uh, um, I am, um, you hear what can only be described as a wet slithering noise combined with some gargling sounds. Um... Actually, who I am isn't, uh, it isn't very important, the bubble suggests. I would, uh, um, I would like to, uh, send you home, but, um, you see, I can't, uh, transmit to the arena, to the audience, and, uh, and, uh, and also send you home, um, it's, uh, too difficult, uh, even for, um, me. Home! Now! You scream, 
yanking on the door. This one doesn't move, and the ache in your arm tells you that it is not likely to. The, uh, that door, um, it is not even you could open. I, I believe it is, uh, it is made from, uh, iron. I, I think you call it too strong for e even you. Uh, if, if you just wait here for a few months, maybe six, the, 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 uh, six months of your time, and I, uh, I'll be done here, and, uh, and then I could send you back, yes, um, I, I think six months would, uh, be enough time. The voice stated, matter-of-factly. Um, you are, um, you, you are quite attractive, uh, for, for your species, I think, uh, the voice seemed to murmur. Oh, no, absolutely not, you harsh shriek. You do not drag me, teleport me, strip me naked, and then flirt with me. Nope, not happening. You send me home right now so that I can sleep off the rest of this. You gesture around wildly. Drunken fantasy. The bubble seems to shiver a bit through the window, and you come to a sudden realization. That's a large window. The window. The window is indeed a fair size. It's roughly equivalent to five by four of your... The voice never got to finish that statement. As you hurled the door in your room, you still had been holding directly at the window, exploding it into hundreds of pieces. You were half a step from getting through the bubble when you heard a half-choked eep in your head and the flash of light. You slowly open your eyes and you're lying face down in what appears to be a parking lot. You sit up and look around. It's a parking lot of your local grocers. It's the parking lot of your local grocers. There's a pair of very short jeans and a stone-cold Steve Austin shirt on the ground next to you. You've never seen either item of clothing before, and certainly never owned them. You put on the clothes anyway, and moments later, a cab pulls up. You're I'm taking home, the cabby said. Got a call a few minutes ago, and you're all paid for. And if you're the one, get in, because I'm not sitting here at this time of night in this neighborhood. You stumble into the cab, muttering your address to the cabbie, who confirms that that's where you're heading. I need to stop drinking so much, you think. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1149 Humanity, open for business, written by the stabby Brent. Bashing humanity is the latest bad these days, which is bloody unfair in my opinion. Look, I'm not saying humanity is perfect. We've made mistakes. I'd say allowing the Jordanian hegemony to rule us for a thousand years as a totalitarian xenophobic galactic empire was a bad move all around, really. Um, but in fairness, we didn't exactly ask them to do it. Moreover, it has been nearly two centuries since we officially wiped them off the map, and that's just when the collapse of the hegemony officially ended. Best point being, uh, stop claiming there were a bunch of war-hungry mass murderers. Only most of us are like that. I'm also willing to admit that the new Glavendales are not exactly a shining example of how to run a colonial cluster. And I'm not saying that because nobody's running it. Seriously, go to any world in the NG cluster announce that you are here to free them from tyranny and oppression and I guarantee all your stuff will be seized by the Revolutionary Army before the end of your sentence. I'm not saying that they deserved to be dumped in the Scoton Spiral Arm on a bunch of autocratic colony worlds built to fail in 70 years so they'd be forever dependent on the overlords to survive. 
I am saying the justice for the Glavendale's brigade has never set foot on those hellholes. If you're an evasion or one of the species they've enslaved, I completely understand why you wouldn't like us because your knowledge of humanity is probably entirely based on the evasion propaganda or the power-armored jackboot of the Camaro. Although, to be fair, if I had to live within striking distance of a fanatical race of draconic monsters who think God is telling them to bring order to the universe, I think I would absolutely want my entire society to be dedicated to building warships and gauze cannons. Same with the Rubicani on the other side of humanity. Yeah, the Missouri aren't quite so violent, but have you met a Kadok? Because the Kadok have never met a species they didn't want to have a war with. Oh, and we're not taking responsibility for the Mulgan. I know they're technically human, but uh, they've been in the black so long, but I think there's mold in my shower that is more human than them. This was meant to be defense of humanity, wasn't it? Given that Judania is probably still a bunch of mad noblemen plotting to murder every alien in the galaxy. The Rubicon Straits and the Cameron Gulf are permanent war zones. The new Glavendale Cluster is blood-soaked anarchist utopia, and Spartan Drift exists. Given all that, what could I possibly hold up as proof that mankind is a great and glorious thing? Your satinate mate, the Great Traverse. When our ancestors realized that they were sandwiched between some angry, bitey aliens, they did the only sensible thing they could. They decided that they were going to hop across the void between the spiral arms. Yeah, I know, the void contains untold thousands of worlds. We're stood on one right now. Point being, anyone who knows anything about the formation of interstar links will tell you that it's a bloody miracle that this space exists. Most stars out here aren't part of a system forever closed off from the rest of the galaxy, unless someone develops a way to hop between them without the links. Every leading expert in the field of stellar cartography for every space-faring species that had stepped more than a dozen links from home agreed that you could not cross the void. But we did. In fact, we didn't just cross the void, we tamed it. Those massive warp gates you find all along the passage of Nalar. We built them. No, we didn't find them. No, they aren't some ancient relics of the Ungortha or some other dead race like the Evisions claim. Humans spent centuries working out how to get across this gulf. And where the route was too damn windy for our liking, we built these colossal rings, hooked them up to moon-sized fusion reactors, and punched holes in reality to make the route more direct. Of course, that's not what made the Great Traverse the Great Traverse. No, this place was merely above average until Judania imploded and the law slammed its gates shut. That was when things became great. See, when the strife happened, everyone else panicked. They closed their borders, hoarded their resources, and turned on each other. Then there was us, Traverses, a thin golden line of humanity spread across the void with enemies on every side. So what did we do? We set up shop. You heard the War of Talon on scale. That was us. Probably should apologize, but we didn't. A Kadek armada decided that they were going to take a chunk out of the Great Traverse now that humanity was falling apart. And some bloody genius went up to them and said, Sorry, uh, we're a weak and boring opponent, but if you want to truly earn fame and glory, we can show you where to find a truly legendary foe. 
And just like that, the Kadak invasion not only kept the Marian kingdom from invading us for 30 years, they paid us for the privilege. Speaking of the kingdom, did you know the evasions can get high? They sure didn't, but we found a way. There are a good dozen space stations dedicated to producing narcotics that allow the least fun species in the galaxy to let their spines down. Seriously though, you have not known terror until you've heard of evasion laughed. Reactor meltdowns make a more soothing noise. Then there are the al Oh boy, the al When their diaspora carried them to Esther, those poor little furballs were convinced that we were going to do to them what every other species had. Beat them, enslave them, and make them suffer. Instead, uh, we took them in. We let them settle on our planet and in our orbitals, and we made them feel welcome. Thus did humanity discover the greatest trait of the Alcatani. They are permanently horny and have absolutely no concept of modesty. Go to Esther sometime and check out Foxtown. Daily private orgies, nightly public orgies. My captain took us to Esther when I was 14, and it took two grown men to drag me back on board. Now we traverses are untouchable. People try to invade us sometimes, but they always fail because when they come to gather up their war fleets, they get a letter reminding them that the Great Traverse built their warships, sold them their ordnance, and delivers their fuel. Want to enslave humanity? You can. There's a company called Endenic Engineering. They will clone, grow a population, and ship them to whatever planet you ask. Want them docile? They can make them docile. Want them to fight back? We can do that too. I have contacts that can turn your victims into religious crusaders, guerrilla insurgents, or whatever kind of enemy you would like. We will deliver the enemy of your dreams, guaranteed six months armed resistance or half your money back. Want to slaughter a population, but for some reason you have a problem with hurting living beings, we'll make robots for you to kill. Or we'll build a supercomputer system that'll let you play a simulated war. <laughs> But even if you don't want to play by our rules, even if you make your own weapons and you want to take a real bite out of the Great Traverse, you're just dooming yourself. We do business with every major and minor power on this side of the galactic core. Yeah, even the Marian Kingdom, even the Masuri Empire, and every major Kadak clan. Hell, even the legendary Makari, if their rumors are true. You attack us, you are threatening the Silk Road that every one of those mad buggers used to enrich themselves, to spy on their enemies and to move their game pieces safely across the intergalactic playing board. That is the modern political chicanery. They will rip you dozens of new orifices and do unspeakable things to those orifices with an inventive assortment of torture devices if you ever dare fire upon so much as a communications buoy. Why? Because we bought the galaxy. We don't run most of it. We don't even run a majority of it. But we don't need to. We own the trading ports. Traverse standards are the de facto intergalactic currency. We are where the mercenaries come for work, where the extra national lawmakers coordinate, and where the pirate lords run their criminal empires from. We are the reason you eat potatoes with every meal. Yes, potatoes are from Earth. Believe it or not, the common language of yours... That's traverse common, our language. A third of our population is non-human, taking the great traverse as a whole. You wear our clothes, you listen to our music, you eat our food. 
You have spent your entire life living in a society that has been desperately trying to be like us for two centuries. And has been so successful, you don't even realize that you're aping us. Best of all, we made a stupid amount of money doing it. Welcome to the Great Traverse. The story was free. The next one costs extra. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.